Hi, this is Jalen for Dobbs, where tire buying is easy. At GoToDobbs.com, shop brands, sizes, pricing, and our amazing deals. With 40-plus locations, get same-day install. For tires, it's Dobbs. For deals you can use, click on GoToDobbs.com now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Time now for the BK and Ferrario podcast. Presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. That was Kobe Brown after a big Missouri win last night. Alongside Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. Coming up in about 20 minutes or so, we'll talk to Ben Clemens. He's a baseball writer for Fangraphs. Want to get his thoughts on the Cardinals. He is a Cardinals fan. Also want to focus, though, on the Bally sports situation with him. He wrote extensively about that over on Fangraphs. We'll get his full thoughts coming up at 1130. Last night, Tanner, we said it going into the game. That was one that Missouri needed to win. Same thing is true, I think, on Saturday against Mississippi State and then certainly next Tuesday when South Carolina comes to town. These are three teams that wouldn't necessarily be considered like bad losses, but they're losses that you don't want on your resume. And Missouri started out this stretch the way that they needed to. This was a trap game in some ways. At home, coming off of a big win against a top 15 opponent against Iowa State, And I had some questions as to how Missouri would respond. How do you respond to the success that you're now feeling in conference play? It's always a question. We see this in the NFL. We see it in the NHL. When you have a big win, what does the next game look like? Well, Missouri came out and John Sunvold said it on the broadcast. Had arguably the best 12 and a half minute stretch to start that game that John John Sunvold has seen by any team so far this season. They were shooting the ball lights out. Kobe Brown was outstanding. Noah Carter came out and it was the first time in the last few games that you really felt his presence. Isaiah Mosley has completely changed the way that this team is able to play offensively. And then later on in the game, Mo Diara comes in and he's able to help you out with the rebounds. He had 10 rebounds. I think it was in 15 minutes in that game. Just an all-around team performance. It wasn't perfect by any stretch of the imagination. But Tanner, my biggest takeaway from that game and really from this Mizzou season, you felt this early on in the Brad Underwood era at Illinois. Mizzou basketball is fun again, man. It feels like the arena is back to where it was when I was at school at Mizzou in the early 2010s. It feels like the team enjoys the style, the brand of basketball that they're playing. And after what we've watched, and this is no shot at Conzo Martin, he's a great human being, it just didn't work at Mizzou. After watching that style of basketball, man, seeing this up-tempo, run-and-gun, it is a a breath of fresh air 
at Mizzou Arena. Yeah, this is a lot different than what it was a year ago today where we were watching them going, man, it the end of the Martin era is coming. They they are a fun team to watch. And when they are hitting their shots, oh my gosh, it is, it is unbelievably fun to watch because it's like you can play great defense against them and they're still going to shoot lights out. I mean, they shot almost 50% from three last night. They're shooting almost 50% from three in their last two yeah. games. Three which games. Was yeah, three games. They were, I don't remember what point it was you texted me last night, but you said there's like 10 minutes left in the half. They have seven threes. I was like, <laughs> Illinois made five in their whole last game. I mean, the style they play is fun. They've got the players to play that style too. Kobe Brown is so much fun to watch when he gets going. He can shoot the three. He can drive and use his size. He can rebound as well as a good stretch kind of four slash a smaller small forward if you want they they are fun to watch and i think they're going to be a team that can surprise a bunch of people once they get to the ncaa tournament especially when they're shooting the ball this well now with that being said defensively they have issues but we knew that we've known that all season long and and you can live with that when they can put up performances like that and i think i saw a stat last night when they score i think it was 70 plus points they're 15 and 0 on the season. So their goal is essentially get to 70 points. Yeah. Probably need a little bit more because they allow close to 70 points too. But I, they are a fun brand of basketball. And, and it's weird because, like, I enjoyed over the last two years at Illinois. It wasn't this style where it was this run and gun, but it was kind of bully basketball. Early on, they had some of that, though. Early on in the Brad Underwood tenure, it was a little more of the helter-skelter. We're going to try to force some turnovers. And listen, Early on in the Brad Underwood era, they also didn't win. I say we were very good early in the but Underwood the, the era. But the style, you could see it. You could see, okay, they're trying to turn you over. They don't have the dudes, and so there's really only one way that Underwood can win, and it's by trying to make you get out of your game. And I think that's what we're seeing right now at Mizzou is this is the style they got to play. This is what you got to go with in order to get as many wins as possible, and then you try to play the math on the other side by sh- chucking up the threes. And some games it works and other games it doesn't. Against Kansas, those threes just didn't go in for them. Uh, against Florida, threes didn't go in. Against Texas A&M, those threes stopped going in. But when they're going in, as they have now for the last three games against Ole Miss, Iowa State, and LSU, man, they are a tough out. They are a tough out because of the way that they play, and it's really hard to game plan against that. If your team going up against them, especially like we get into tournament, man, don't let them win that first game. Because if you've got to play them on a day or two's notice, it's going to be really tough for you to prepare for the style of defense that they are they have going up against you. Yeah, and especially now that they've added Mosley back into the conversation, mm-hmm. too. Originally, it was just kind of, okay, you've got Brown. Yeah, they got a couple of good shooters. You know, Carter's solid. But now that you got Mosley, too, is arguably their best player last year. I mean, they're they're a really solid team. They're, they're going to be a team that can surprise a bunch of people. And it's so funny how different Illinois and Mizzou's play styles are, as you mentioned. I mean, they just Illinois is going to win games because they're defense. They don't have the yep. shooting to do it. Missouri, polar opposites. forget about defense. Missouri is going to beat you by just scoring you. So they are a fun basketball team to watch. They are much more enjoyable than watching Illinois. Trust me, I watched them play Nebraska the other night. It was not a fun experience. But they are a team that I think once they get hot, if they can get hot going into the NCAA tournament, I heard, uh, I don't remember if Sunvold or if his partner last night said it, that, you know, the ceiling's a Sweet 16 team. I, I think if they get hot, they can exceed that and get to an Elite Eight. I, I don't think they can get to a Final Four because they have f- some serious flaws. But, man, they get hot from three-point range. Welcome to the fun house. I mean, you're talking about a tough team to beat. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line to get involved in the show from the 636. Guys, the Bleep KU chants were cracking me up last night late in the game. I, I will say this. The Mr. Brightside tradition that they have started is excellent. Tanner, I don't know if you appreciate it or not, but man, it is so fun to see that arena 
buzzing the way that it was last night and seeing them all in unison get the bleep KU chance at the end of the Mr. Brightside. Just tremendous. Even John Sunfold was getting in on the fun. He was telling his partner, hey, you know, the song's not over yet. They were they were busting it out. I I respected it. Tanner, I'm guessing as a 70 year old man internally, you're not a big Mr. Brightside fan and you probably didn't enjoy the fact you think that had made him look bad on national television that they were doing the bleep KU chance. But, you know, I don't mind the bleep KU chant if you didn't get killed by him. So, you know, there's that. But uh, I, I don't I don't mind the Mr. Brightside. I love okay. the atmosphere there. I, I Mizzou last year watching them. And look, I didn't watch a lot of Mizzou basketball. It's like last funeral year. every day. Oh, yeah, it, it was bad. It, it was like watching basketball while bingo was going on. So I I enjoy the environment way more this year. So, but yeah, the F-U-K-U chant, you know, you probably should beat them to have that chance. Oh, stop but, it. No, but, no, no, no. Know, That's what a rivalry it, is, man. Yeah, I know. But when you get smacked around a little bit, is it really a rivalry? Yes. Oh, yeah. Still rivalry, but yeah, I don't think you have the right to say F-U-K-U when you get destroyed. This goes back to like, Hundreds of years ago, man. You learn up some history on Mizzou versus Kansas before you talk about whether or not Missouri can talk. All I'm saying is Illinois wouldn't be chanting F-U-I-U if uh, they were getting smacked around by them. I mean, that happened three months ago. It's a very different. Yeah, that that is exactly what we needed at Mizzou Arena. And it was buzzing last night. Speaking of Mizzou Arena. Kobe Brown is an awesome story, and we've talked about him a little bit so far this year, Tanner. We probably need to do it a little bit more, especially down the stretch as we get closer to tournament time. I'm trying to think, and I want you guys to help me out with this. 314-399-9646, whether you're a Missouri fan or somebody a fan of somebody else. Kobe Brown is a unique story because... He's always been a really solid contributor at Mizzou. He's been a guy that for the first three years of his career at Missouri, he was a decent starter. You didn't mind him being out there on the court. He was probably an above average starter for a power five conference, but he never felt like a guy that was like taking over a game necessarily. He had moments, but it wasn't like an every night. He's the go-to guy that you could lean on for a contender. This year, he's become one of the best players in the conference and he's done so as a senior Freshman, sophomore, junior, solid player. Senior, just a complete breakout season. One of, like, arguably the player of the conference. Like, he'll be up there with the conference player of the year types of conversations. Probably won't win it, but he'll be in the conversation. And the biggest difference for him is his shooting. By year, 25%, 25%, 21%, 48%. That's what he's done from three. So far in conference play, he's shooting 50% from beyond the arc that's the second best rate by any volume shooter in the sec so far this year from three what is the comparison for this the guys that i thought about last night that came to mind frank mason if you remember on kansas he was a a really solid player his first three years and then boom became like national player of the year as a senior Cindarius Thornwell, if you remember that South Carolina team that went to the final four. Now, they played a completely different brand of basketball. They were more like this year's Illinois, where it was bully ball. We're going to break you down defensively. One of the top defenses in the country And Cindarius Thornwell is going to bring this thing home for us. He was their driving force. Those are the only two that I can really remember that went from like pretty good players to superstars as a senior. And that's what Kobe Brown has done. Can you remember anybody that has had this kind of development curve 
at Illinois, for example, Tanner? Not really. I was looking through some of the guys that came to mind in the office earlier. Brandon Paul might be the closest, but he was really good the final two years. It wasn't just his senior year in which he played really well. Everybody else that I thought of, like uh, Plummer from last year, he was solid for four years. He was never like a super superstar in college basketball in terms of being one of the best players in the conference. I was just looking up because he kind of I, – I thought his three-point shooting had been better, but it's really tailed off of late. Terrence Shannon's kind of been that way where he's kind of exploded. He's now a 17-point-per-game player, which is most in his career. But three of those years came at Texas uh, Texas Tech rather mm-hmm. than here at Illinois. So there's not really anybody that comes to mind for me for Illinois that's really just all of a sudden in their senior year, boom, has found something that clicks and turns it on. Yeah, it, it's tough to find these types of players. They're just so rare. Like Kobe Brown, I think, has a real chance. We are talking about this last night, Tanner. He has a real chance to become an NBA player. Like he, he might get himself drafted if he continues shooting this way. And previously, I would have said, that's a guy that's probably got an overseas career. Like, can go make himself some money in, like, Italy or one of the overseas leagues. I didn't think that he had any chance of being able to be an NBA player. And now I'm starting to question that. Starting to eat my own words. And he, he's looking like a guy that could end up going to the league. So it's it's been a hell of a lot of fun to watch, man. And what he has done... The development that he's had, especially as a three-point shooter, is what's opened up everything else for Missouri basketball this season. Without him becoming this player, I don't think we're talking about a tournament team right now. So kudos to him. Kudos to this coaching staff for that development. We'll talk about it a little bit further coming up in the 1 o'clock hour. In 15 minutes, we're talking to Ben Clemens. He's a baseball writer for Fangraphs. I think he had the definitive piece the other day on how Bally Sports got to this place where they're probably going to go into bankruptcy. They're going to skip their first payments. That all sounds very scary, especially for the Cardinals. Yeah, that does when sound kind of bad. They're relying on those broadcast fees. What does it mean, both in the short and the long term, for a team like the Cardinals if Valley Sports goes under? We'll talk about that with Ben Clemens coming up in about 15 minutes or so. But coming up next, did things get stale for the St. Louis Blues? And if so, what does that mean? We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. What it it appears St. Louis is trying to do is obviously get younger. They have to be mindful of the salary gap, what that's going to look like in the next couple of years. But do it in a transitional phase. You add freshness to the group, don't you? This core has been together a long time. Uh, The majority of this core are from a Stanley Cup championship team. So it's just cyclical. There comes a point in time where you hope that the window isn't going to close, but the reality is it does close. So I think that, you know, Armstrong and company are looking to freshen things up that was Darren Drager yesterday on the fast lane. It was an excellent conversation with the guys. If you missed any of it, check it out on the podcast page, 101ESPN.com, the free 101 ESPN app. It's all presented by Dobbs at Tire and Auto Centers. Tanner, I think what he says there is interesting, where he, he's basically saying, hey, things got stale. And this happens with teams. You go through the life cycle of one group of players. I think we saw this in 2023 with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, for example. You saw they went from a team that when Tom Brady first got there was immediately a legitimate contender for a Super Bowl. And then they got their ring. And over the last year or so, it's it got stale. And some of the same guys that were key contributors on that Super Bowl run, like 
Leonard Fournette, for example, some of those offensive linemen that were injured or less effective this year, some of the defensive players like Devin White, really good player during that Super Bowl run. There are some real weaknesses in his game, though, that have started to show themselves since then. I think that stuff all starts to catch up with you over time. And if you don't supplement it with young talent that can like take over for some of those guys that maybe are on the wrong side of 30, for example, then you're at risk of things getting stale and your team taking a step back. I think that's what we're seeing with the Blues this year. This is not a shot on anybody in particular. This stuff happens. It happens in the NFL, NBA, obviously in the NHL. The life cycle of a team just it comes and goes. Doug Armstrong at the beginning of this, when he traded for Ryan O'Reilly, said, I think this team has a five-year window where we can be a legitimate Stanley Cup contender. Now, they were robbed of, I think, a couple of years in that window because of the pandemic. It it completely altered things. I think things changed this year when over the last, what, three seasons now, we've seen the NHL salary cap take a step back compared to what they were projecting. And I think that that limited them and what they were able to add from the outside. So there's also some unintended consequences of what's happened worldwide over the last couple of seasons. But I think what we've seen is that things have gone stale and there is a need to get some fresh blood in here. And I think that that's what we're going to see in the next really one month. Basically, we're one month away tomorrow from the NHL's trade deadline. I think that's going to be the start of what is a complete overhaul of this roster that is at this point in time necessary for the St. Louis Blues. Yeah, I, I definitely think there is some staleness. And as you said, all teams kind of go through this. I, I do want to address a text. Someone from the 314 said, well, look at the Boston Bruins. They don't look real stale. They've had kind of the same core. They got new life or new blood in terms of their next head coach. They yeah. changed head coaches. And I'm not saying that the Blues, if they would have fired Bruby this season, that would have happened. I don't think that's the case. They just got a new head coach in the offseason that changed things for them. But I agree with you. I mean, they also made at, a huge trade last year at the deadline to bring in Hampus Lindholm, who's been excellent for them yeah. so far this year. Like they they did make some necessary changes to this roster, along with the obvious, like, hey, we've got this core of five, six, seven guys that has been there for, I mean, a decade or basically now. And when you look at the Blues, they didn't make any kind of moves like that in the offseason. They did bring in guys like they brought in uh, Thomas Grice, Nolachari, but none of those guys are like core defining players. They're all, they brought in a bunch of like fourth liners and Nolacharis, who's a third line centerman to be on the team. So I do think there is some of that staleness because a lot of these guys have been here. They've won the cup and they've gotten their contract that, they, that they've been looking for. So there's kind of that okay, now what am I looking for? I've already got my one cup, like Ryan O'Reilly, Robert Thomas, they've got cups, Colton Pareko, they've got a Stanley Cup, Jordan Bennington's got a Stanley Cup, and Bennington kind of said this, I think it was in the offseason when he talked with uh, Emily Kaplan of ESPN, you know, talking about the turbulence of the season and trying to find his way, and he kind of said, you know, I'd won a Stanley Cup, and I didn't know what was next for me in terms of what I was looking for. So I, I do think there is some staleness. I do think fresh blood is going to be something that's going to help. I'm not saying they're going to go become a playoff team after the trade deadline, but I do think it's something that's going to help kind of change the trajectory of this team moving forward. And I think, again, at some point, all teams kind of have to go through something where they have to make some changes during even a winning window in which it is just kind of stale. I mean, the example of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers is perfect. I mean, I thought they were going to be a juggernaut even after that first Super Bowl with Tom Brady. And then it just suddenly changed. It wasn't anything roster construction-wise, really. I mean, they had a lot of the same players from that Super Bowl run. Just things happened, and and it just didn't go the way that they were expecting. I think you see this just in everyday life as well. Like 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line if you guys want to get involved in the show. But, I mean, think about whatever it is that you do. Eventually, if you do the same thing every day with the same people over, I mean, 
I think it's a little different in hockey with the way that like pro sports are just obviously different than our everyday jobs. But if you do that for a decade and you're doing it with the same people every single day and you've got the same like cycle of what your day looks like, eventually that's going to get stale. All of us could use a little bit of a change up in our lives on a day to day basis here. You need like a little. Yeah, one of you show. or Alex got to get up out of here at some point over the next decade. That's that's the way that this that's what I'm getting at here. No, I just I think in in life everything you need new blood that is ignited into something, and there does come a point in time where what you're doing, if you don't change it up a little bit, it does eventually become stale. And I think that's where the Blues have arrived, and they're going to need to make some of those changes at the trade deadline and then certainly in the offseason in order to get things back on track. That does mean making difficult decisions. And Darren Drager yesterday on the fast lane was asked about Ryan O'Reilly and whether or not he thinks there is any scenario in which O'Reilly is here, A, past the deadline, and then B, potentially long-term thereafter. The dollars are going to be tight here. They have to be. I mean, the salary cap is going to increase. It could be a flat cap, depending on what the Players Association decides. It could go up $3 million, and then the year after, it'll probably go up considerably more after that. But those are all factors, right? And if the extension doesn't make sense, either term or in dollar, then the hard decision is going to have to be made, and you take a trade to Ryan O'Reilly. But Doug Armstrong first needs to educate himself and all of those scenarios before he makes that informed decision closer to the deadline. I know this is going to sound weird, and I I don't take any like pride in saying this. I don't know that there's a scenario in which I think it makes sense for the Blues to bring back Ryan O'Reilly. Like If he's willing to accept $3.5 million a season, and he shouldn't, but if he was to just because he wants to be in St. Louis, okay, sure. Like that's third line centerman money. You can you can make do with that. Yeah, bring back Ryan O'Reilly. But barring something unforeseen, if he's going to get the market value, which is going to be five plus million dollars per year probably for a player like O'Reilly, I don't think he's a guy that you bring back at this point in time. And it's because of what we've been talking about. I do think that there needs to be a reshuffle on this roster. I think there needs to be new voices that are added into the leadership mix. I think that it is time for them to turn things over to some of these younger guys that are on the roster. And that may eventually become the worst decision possible. They may end up looking back and regretting it. I think there's some other moves prior to this one that they look back on and they say, okay, maybe that's not the right move that we decided to make there. But when you look at the way that the roster has performed this year, you look at their their attempts to try to find somebody to play with O'Reilly, and it just has not caught on for whatever reason. I, I think that is time. I, I think that we are approaching at the deadline the moment where you do have to make a difficult decision and one none of us really wanted to see coming to decide to trade Ryan O'Reilly and move on to the next era of whatever Blues hockey ends up becoming. Yeah, I, I side on the side of you to where I, I just don't see a scenario in which you bring back Ryan O'Reilly because of all the things that we're talking about. You know, growing stale, we kind of mentioned this a little bit yesterday, and potential overhaul of the forward group going into next season. Also, the, like you said, not being able to find a pairing mate with him. I, I think if he had success with Jordan Cairo early in the season, which was his pairing mate for, what, the first three, four games, and they quickly were like, yeah, this isn't working. We need to abandon it. I think it's a different conversation because you'd see that he was working well with your future core players. And I I don't think he's the player he's been this year where he's a guy that's only going to have 16 points through 37 games. I do think he's better than that right now. I just think for whatever reason, this year it snowballed on him. He couldn't get back going, worried about his contract. I, I think he's still a good player. 
But with that being said, I do think it is time for the Blues to move on and and try and gain assets by moving him at the deadline, and then also just figuring out what you're going to have internally after that. I, I don't think there's a scenario in which you can bring him back because of everything that we've said. It, it's time to kind of change things over to the next wave of whoever's coming behind Robert Thomas. You're going to have Thomas, who's going to be your number one guy moving forward. He's already been your number one guy. And also you've got Braden Shen that'll be the number two at center. So I, I kind of agree with you. I know Alex would disagree and would say, you know, they should be trying to keep Brian O'Reilly. But I'm with you. I think you let him walk in free agency and you try to trade him and get some assets. This text comes from the 314. Guys, assuming Ryan O'Reilly is not here after the deadline, would you consider his captaincy in St. Louis a success? Yes. He won a Conn Smythe and you won the Stanley Cup with him. Absolutely. Anything else? Like You could have been a disaster before and after you win the Stanley Cup with him and it would be worth it. So like... You ended up having that guy being like the driving force. And I understand he wasn't necessarily like the captain at that point in time, but he was like ready to go. You knew he was going to be the captain. Yes, it was a success. Ryan O'Reilly's time here in St. Louis was a success. So um, that's that's how I would view it. How do you view that, Tanner? I agree. I would view it as a success because he was a part. He was a key part in that, as you said, in that Stanley Cup run. So and yeah, he wasn't the captain then, but. I, I, I think you can't only I don't think you can I, separate it because I, he was like still the leader on the team yeah. along with Petro at that point in time. So I I don't think you can separate the last three years from the first couple. Was, was the ending disappointing in just this final season? Yeah, but I, I don't think that's enough to derail what the first four had been with Ryan O'Reilly. So I agree with you. I, I would say that it was a success. And like I know they traded away Tate Thompson for him. Thompson wasn't that guy, and I don't think he was ever going to become that guy here in St. Louis. And even if he was, I'll trade that for a Stanley, Stanley Cup, Cup any day yep. of the week. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line for questions and answers. But coming up next... We're going out to the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line to be joined by our friend Ben Clemens. He's a baseball writer for Fangraphs. Had what I think is the definitive piece on what's going on right now with the Bally situation, then potentially going under, and what that means for teams around Major League Baseball, specifically here in St. Louis. Is that going to change their offseason plans next year? Could it change their deadline plans this year? We'll ask Ben Clemens next year on 101 ESPN. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. So one of the biggest stories in sports right now is something about Diamond Sports Group. Now, you may not be familiar. It's essentially Bally Sports. 
And they are headed for bankruptcy. They're skipping their first payments, allegedly, uh, this year. And as you may know, as a Cardinals fan, that could impact the team because they happen to play on Bally Sports Midwest. All of this is a bit over my head. I don't understand the financial terms of any of it. It's a lot. And so I wanted to go to an expert. So we've got Fangraph's Ben Clemens joining us now. He wrote about the whole situation over at Fangraph's in a way that I could understand it. So hopefully that means you guys can understand it as well. Joins us now via the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line. Ben, we appreciate the time as always, man. How you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? Uh, doing all right. So we're going to try to talk about finances uh, for a multi-billion dollar company on the radio, which uh, can get a little bit into the minutia, of course. But uh, let's start here. For people that haven't been paying attention to what's going on with Bally Sports and the Diamond Sports Group, if you had to take like the 10,000 foot view, the elevator pitch, what's happening with this right now? Yeah, so... If you'll remember, it used to be Fox Sports for a long time, and there were there were a bunch of Fox Sports networks. And a few years ago, that all got sold in one big chunk, and now it's called Bally Sports. And that's like it's a bunch of regional sports networks. So it's I think it's fourteen baseball teams as well as basketball and hockey teams, kind of all over the country. And they they have a pretty simple business. They pay the Cardinals to broadcast their games. Then they charge cable companies to put those games on cable. And that's basically it. Like they, they have some on-air talent that they pay for as well. They have other expenses, you know, like they, they employ the, the announcers and everything and the cameramen, but that, that's their business. They pay teams to get the rights to show their games. Then they charge people who put things on TV, cable companies, streamers, that kind of stuff for those rights. Like, hey, you want to watch the Cardinals? Pay us some money. Hmm. And that business has been getting worse over the years, as you know, just by living, right? Like people are cord cutting, there's more streaming. So obviously like it's not as good as it was 10 years ago, but they're charging more to make up for it. So fewer people watch cable, but it costs more. I don't know. Like we've all lived that. It's kind of annoying if you want to have cable. Sure. And so the big thing that is happening now is that uh, Sinclair, which is the company that bought all these Bally Sports Networks under a Diamond Sports subsidiary. Don't pay any attention to that. Bally Sports is like the easiest way to think about it. They bought it with a bunch of debt. So that you can think about it as like a mortgage. They took out a mortgage on, like instead of a house, a $10 billion business. And it was the kind of deal where they were basically renting out the business to pay for that mortgage. They were really needing the profits from this business model of, hey, pay the team's get the money back from the cable companies, whatever profits we have, we'll use to pay our debt. I mean, you know, people do this with houses. You know, they, they either use their salary or they rent out the house. It's the same kind of deal. And they had a, a problem that is all too familiar to people, which is mm, the profits weren't quite what they thought. They lost their job. Like they, they were just making less money every year than they expected. And they took out a big mortgage. Like you would not be able to take out a mortgage this big on your house, let alone on a $10 billion company. They owed like $500 million a year in interest payments. And so they needed to be making a lot of money to make that work. They thought they would. They bought it in 2019. And the mixture of COVID and cord cutting just (laughs) made it not work. And so they're losing money. And they have really no prospect of paying off this debt. 
And so they've said, ah, uncle, like we can't do it. We're going to have, we're not going to be able to make our debt payments. We're going to go bankrupt. So when that happens, I, I guess at this point, it's really not even an if, but when, when they go through the bankruptcy uh, filing, what does that mean for Bally sports? Like if I'm a casual fan, for example, watching the Cardinals night tonight, what impact mm-hmm. will that have on me and my ability to watch the team? And what impact will that have potentially on the team that I am watching, in your opinion? Well, there's good news here. The good news is that if you ignore the debt, which is, you know, <laughs> that's not how real life works, <laughs> bankruptcy. If you ignore the debt, the Bally Sports Group is still profitable. They're making money before debt payments at the moment. And so the big problem here is the debt, not the, uh, I mean, Maybe in the long run, the business is not great. But the big problem right now, the reason that right now there's a crisis, is not because they just can't charge enough money to cable companies. It's because they owe this big debt payment. When they go bankrupt, the debt payment's going to go away. And more specifically, what's going to happen is that the current owners are going to stop being the owners. And the people who have that debt, like the people who they borrowed the money from, will now own Bally. So it's kind of funny. It's going to be owned by like Fidelity, Prudential, like all these mutual funds you've heard of, essentially. Are the ones who own the bonds, and now they're just going to own Valley Sports. And look, if you ignore the debt, it's a an okay business. Like they, they, right now they're making more money than they pay, and that'll likely continue happening for at least the near future. So the good thing about all this is that contracts can continue into bankruptcy, and I think it is in both the the Valley Sports Group and baseball's favor to keep things going. You can imagine the people who now own or are now going to own it in a month, they're going to want to sell it. Like, like I have, I have a mutual fund in Fidelity. I, I have my brokerage account there. and They're not in the business of broadcasting baseball games. That's not, the, that's not what they do. They, you know, they, they charge you $8 to make a trade, and it might actually be free now. I don't know. But their business is being a really big financial like provider, not baseball broadcast. So they want to sell it just obvious like they're going to get it and they're going to be like well we don't want this we'll sell it to a media company who's good at this and it has value basically entirely because of these contracts with teams so imagine that valley sports says well we don't want to pay the cardinals they could in bankruptcy the cardinals would say great we're out of contract <laughs> like you can't broadcast our games anymore and then now imagine trying to sell a regional sports network that doesn't have any teams <laughs> like hey would you would you like to buy valley sports midwest uh, also it doesn't have cardinals broadcast yeah. anymore well, it's worthless. <laughs> that's, that's basically the whole value of these things. And so I think in the short run, there's little impact. It would really not help anyone to upset the boat. Like, Valley is not served by breaking contracts. Baseball is not served by trying to get out of contracts. The cable providers are not served by, like, refusing to pay, and they can't actually. It has to be broken the other way. So we're kind of in a situation where like all this weird debt stuff is going on, but to you and me, nothing is going to happen in in the next six months. I think it's highly unlikely that your experience of watching Valley sports changes at all. What about for the Cardinals, Ben? Because like here locally, as you know, you're a Cardinals fan. How do you think it impacts the Cardinals themselves? If, for example, any of these payments are missed or anything like that, like in the short and long run over the next calendar year, let's say, do you think it impacts them in a more significant way, a more meaningful way that it impacts you and me watching the games? So one year, no. Uh, it's just it's not going to work out for Bally to meaningfully miss a payment. 
And if the Cardinals get their money three months late, they're not going to care. They're they're a pretty big business that's spinning off cash flow. Like they'd be annoyed. It would uh, it would impact their finances slightly. They might have to take a, a short term loan or something to to pay various people. But in the short run, it's just not going to affect them that much. I, I I think the odds of it doing anything at all are quite low. And anything that it that would happen in the short run would be like minimal impact to the Cardinals. I think the the bigger picture here, long run, is that this is just telling us what we already knew, which is that the business of regional sports networks is not like a great long term model. I think like that's not shocking. People just don't have cable as much anymore, and the way that it works is that they have to keep either finding new audiences. And Bally tried to do that. They launched a streaming service. I don't know if you have it. I I certainly didn't. I didn't even know how to get it. Um, I've got their the, the Bally Sports app, which is, I mean, oh, listen, I, it it works occasionally. <laughs> I'll put it that way. Yeah, so like, I guess long term, I think this business model was kind of it had plateaued, and it wasn't it wasn't going to get better. Um, rights fees, that's the real question. I don't think this says anything about rights fees changing. So I looked at all of the contracts that the new group had signed since coming over from Fox Sports. You know, the Cardinals contract is old. Like it, it got signed, I think, in the mid-2010s, and it, it just carried over when, the, when ownership changed hands. But it wouldn't really suit Bally to try to renegotiate this deal. I think the Cardinals would actually command more if they got a new deal now, right. given the way that rights fees have gone since then. I mean, they're making similar money to the Tigers, and like that, I think they could do better. Uh, but in the very long run, I don't know if this regional sports network model is going to continue forever. And this is just a kind of a way of breaking it up a little more quickly. You could imagine that a lot of the people who want to buy this are not trying to do the same thing that Bally and Fox sports did. A lot of people are going to try to buy this. are going to be like internet companies, essentially. Like you don't think YouTube and Google want this. They just bought NFL Sunday ticket for some astronomical sum. I mean, that's think. basically the MLS model, right? They just went over to the to Apple TV. Where they've got this season pass that's available for them. So, I mean, is that kind of the, the direction that seems more likely? I mean, it's really going to come down to whether a legacy media company. So Comcast was actually involved in the bidding in uh, what was then Fox Sports, what became Valley Sports back in 2019. And they were pretty close to winning, actually. And that would have been a very different thing, right? Like folding it right into cable would make things look very different. Cable would have a little bit more of a cudgel to get people to stay on it because they could just say, well, it's not going to streaming. Like, you have no luck. Right. It's just not going to be there. So they'll be bidding again. I think a lot of kind of content companies will be bidding again. Like, maybe not Netflix, but you don't think, like, Google, Apple, the MLS thing was great. Like, I'm sure it's good business for Apple. Their baseball people, they seem very happy with. I, I don't see why all those companies won't be involved in it. The real question is whether baseball wants mm-hmm. to piece out for themselves. And there's a lot of rumors that they do, that they want to run their own content provision service. I think that sounds really hard, and I think it'd be a, a big undertaking for the league, but it, it really does sound like it's right up Rob Manfred's alley. And they just hired the old, essentially like the, the CFO, I believe, of Diamond Sports, like of Valley Sports, to run what's called local media outreach for baseball. So it kind of seems like the league is interested in maybe taking back some of this for themselves, maybe coming up with a local MLB.tv package. You know, I do know that there are a lot of people who want to watch 
their team, their local team, and that's the only reason they get cable. And they pay a lot for that with some channels they don't really care about. And if the league thinks, hey, we could get half that money, not all the money from cable subscriptions, but half the money, that would be a, a bonanza for them. And I'd, I'm very certain that they are discussing this at high levels at the moment. So I think what's going to happen in the, the medium run is that you're going to see a fight for the way that sports get broadcast in the future. I have no clue who will win that. Like, I, I couldn't even handicap it. Sure. It's going to be a lot of really powerful like American companies all haggling over like a lot of money. And I don't know what will happen. If you guys want to learn more about this, go over to Fangraphs.com. Ben Clemens has an excellent story. It's it's actually digestible in a story that is, again, way over my head and probably way over many casual baseball fans' heads. Uh, it's more on the financial side of things, but he, he makes it understandable, and he goes through basically from start to finish how we arrived at this point where Bally Sports Midwest is likely to go away, at least in its current form. So if you want to read more about that, go over to Fangraphs.com. I think it's well worth your time. It'll inform you on how we got to this point uh, even more so than just the conversation that we've had here uh ben i do want to ask you a cardinals question before we get you out of here because i'm curious with the team as it currently is assembled it it seems like they're basically done i mean there's there's not a lot left on the free agency market i don't think they're going to make a big trade by opening day but maybe they add like a left-handed reliever or something there's still a couple of good ones out there based on the way they're currently assembled how would you assess the roster going into the season? I like I don't want to hear about the the central. We know they're they're the favorite there, but compared to the other great teams in the National League, how would you assess this current Cardinals roster? I think they're a they're a half step behind, and I think that's that's basically been their plan. I I I support that plan honestly. I don't think it was it'd be really easy to turn this team which has, you know, two superstars and then a bunch of really good players, a bunch of above average players into a team that's going to go like toe-to-toe with the Mets and Dodgers in a five-game series. I don't think they'd be big underdogs or anything, but I don't think they're going to get to the same level as those guys, and I don't think it was reasonable to do that this offseason. They have one of those like luxury problems where, like, who do you really want to replace to really give the Cardinals more impact? They don't have any bad players. And to the extent that they did, because of Yachty's retirement, they went out and got Wilson Contreras. Like, great. He was the best catcher available. I, I don't think they could afford the like, admittedly strange price for Sean Murphy. Uh, I really wanted Sean Murphy on the Cardinals, but it seems like the A's just wanted one prospect the Cardinals didn't have. And aside from that, like, they had one position of weakness where they could shore it up a lot. And I went out and got the best guy available. Like, I like that. I, I do worry about the pitching staff, but I just I wasn't enamored with any of the pitchers who were on the market this year. I think that the Cardinals weren't out of like they weren't completely crazy to just say, eh, like we'll take a pass on these guys and look again next year. You know, very few of the pitchers on the roster are under contract for twenty twenty four. I think they'd probably extend Montgomery at some point. Like I would. I think that he's a nice fit for the team. But aside from that, like pretty happy with what they did i don't think they're quite as good as the best teams but they're like not that far behind and if you if you had me build a roster around a good farm system and arenado and goldschmidt i'd be happy if i ended up with what the i think they did a good job that's kind of where we're at as well i'll be curious to see what it looks like in season i think that's the other thing that i like about this team more than i have recent years is They've got outs, right? Like you, you've got the opportunity if your outfield doesn't work out the way you expect it to. 
hey, maybe you end up with Jordan Walker in the outfield, and he he's a potential uh, insertion in there. If you yeah. don't have a Brendan Donovan, who I know you wrote about recently over at Fangraphs, uh, go with at the same level, hit at the same level as he did a year ago, well, maybe Nolan Gorman can be that guy internally. You've got other <laughs> options there for you. Same thing is true on the pitching staff, whether it be in the bullpen or starting-wise. And if Jack Flaherty, for example, doesn't become the number one starter that they're hoping for, maybe you go to the trade deadline and you get one of the starters that does become available because those guys are available every offseason or every uh, trade deadline. And you've got the prospects now to be able to utilize. So I, I like where they're at. I, I think they've got a lot of potential outs going into the season. Yeah, I know it, it's fun to say that they should do more, but I like the way they're doing this. I think that the, the depth that we've all been promised for years and years is, is really coming through. And they've got a lot of options at a lot of positions. I like it. Hey, Ben, we appreciate the time, man. Thanks so much for making us a little bit smarter when it comes to this Bally Sports situation. Hopefully we'll talk with you again soon and talk a little bit more baseball that time around. Love to do that. You got <laughs> it. That's Ben Clemens, great baseball writer over at Fangraphs. Again, if you want to check out a little bit more about the Bally Sports situation, you want to read about Brendan Donovan, you could do that all over on Fangraphs where Ben Clemens writes about the game. You can also follow him on Twitter at underscore Ben underscore Clemens. That's underscore Ben underscore Clemens, C L E M. E-N-S. Always appreciate him hopping on with us today. Like I said with him, Tanner, this whole Bally Sports situation is like way over my head. I I don't know anything about finances. Like I should be way better about all that stuff. I'm terrible at it. But when I read his piece and you kind of dive into it, it, you think to yourself like, okay, what does this mean for the Cardinals, right? Because I don't care so much what it means for the you know, Seattle Mariners, for example, and they're not on Bally, but just like random team X, the Royals, the, the Royals are on Bally. Sure. The Tigers, whoever your that other team is. I want to know what does this mean for my team? And it sure seems like at least in the immediacy, it doesn't mean a whole lot. It's not going to matter too much for them right now. But in the long term, like if you're a casual Cardinals fan, you just want to watch the team. I do think that the way that we watch baseball is going to change soon. And that's where things could get very interesting is, OK, What does that mean? Does that mean that I'm going to have to get a specific app? Does that mean that I'm going to have to go over to Apple TV? Does it mean I'm going to have to go to Amazon? Like, especially for, I mean, an older generation than us that's watching the Cardinals, that could be a massive change in their life. So I will be curious to see where this ends up going, but at least in the immediate future, it doesn't seem like it's going to have too big of an impact. And I think all things considered, that's got to be a win for Cardinals fans. Yeah, I'm glad to hear what he said where it's not going to have an immediate impact to your point, not just in the viewing pleasure too, but also kind of the payments. That that was one thing that stuck out to my mind too was, okay, what if there are no payments? How do all these teams suddenly start approaching things? The Cardinals specifically, a team that they rely more on the gate revenue, but they're getting a big chunk of change from Bally Sports Midwest. But he said, again, not, not much that's going to impact the immediate. To your point, I do think baseball is going to change. I I he said baseball's involved potentially, or there's talks around circles. I, I think that's where it's going to go is where it's all going to become MLB's going to own the rights to these. I think it's 14 teams yeah. that have the RSNs. I, I think baseball is going to be the team that sw- swoops in because I remember reading an article not too long ago that they wanted to do that back in 19 and were shocked when Sinclair joined in <laughs> and bought them which I can see why they were shocked because they, when they looked at it and went, well, that's weird. They're you gonna, guys don't have the money yeah, to do what this. Are you doing? I don't understand. But I, I do think that's where we're going to end up going. Or 
more it's going to be kind of like you said, the MLS route, where it's more of, you know, one major company is going to come in, Apple, Google, who you mentioned brought the Sunday NFL ticket, and they're just going to pick up everything at once. I, I think that's where we're going. So, yeah, I do think our experience is going to change in the near future. I think the two most likely options are we either end up going the full streaming route or we go the full MLB is now in charge route. I think yeah. it's one of those two. At least that's where I would put, like, if I was putting the betting odds right now, those would be my top two favorites. Somebody from the 573 says, if a new MLB TV app comes with a free soy latte i know who's going to be the first in line excuse me sir i would be getting the oat milk latte coming up in about 10 minutes or so is there any scenario whatsoever in which the st louis blues bring back vladimir tarasenko we'll do that coming up in about 10 minutes or so but really quickly let's get to some questions and answers 314-399-9646 that's coming up on the other side here on 101 espn we're right back to the bk and ferrario podcast presented by dobbs tire and auto centers on 101 ESPN. You've got questions. We may have the answers. Maybe? Text 314-399-9646. BK and Ferrario's questions and answers on 101 ESPN. Brought to you by James Carlton with State Farm. Have drivers under 25 on your insurance? Save hundreds of dollars a year with CarltonInsurance.net. We'll do a quick period of questions and answers. Words are hard at this point in the day. Coming up in about 10 minutes or so. Is there any scenario where the Blues would bring back Vladimir Tarasenko? We'll talk about that coming up here in just a bit. But first, let's get to your questions from the 636. Guys, what do you think we can realistically expect from Brendan Donovan at the plate this season? I think you're going to see a pretty similar... Um, like baseball savant page or baseball savant, well, both baseball savant and baseball reference page, as you saw last year. I think he's a guy that's going to hit for a decent average. He's never, he's never going to be a guy that just blisters the baseball. He doesn't hit it hard. Um, so I would say probably, you know, I'd say he hits anywhere between 260 to 290. He's going to have a high on base because he draws walks, mm-hmm. and he also gets hit by pitches, which Ben Clemens wrote in his piece on Fangrass, which I do recommend you check out. It was a really good piece, and he's not going to slug. Or he's not going to slug a lot. He doesn't have a whole lot of power. Like five home runs. Yeah, that's probably about where he'll be. Five to seven. So I'd say he's a guy that hits that 260, 290. You're going to have that high OBP and be 20% above league average. Do you like DJ LeMahieu? I do. He's pretty good. I think something like what DJ LeMahieu was last year. DJ LeMahieu last year finished with about 12 home runs. Uh, was a 260 hitter with a 360 on base percentage. So got a lot of, lot of on base. Doesn't strike out a whole lot. Decent batting average, but not a whole lot of power. I think that's what you expect out of Brendan Donovan going into the season. Something, honestly, what Christian Yelich did last year. Not all that far away from what I would expect this season from uh, Brendan Donovan as well. Finished with 14 home runs, 250 batting average, 360 on base percentage. I I think that on base is going to be pretty high, going to be among the best in the league. Um, and I don't think you expect a ton when it comes to the power. Stephen Kwan, another guy that kind of profiles similarly to what you expect out of Brendan Donovan. I, I think we kind of know what he's going to be. And it, the question is, like, does that power make up for a potential drop in batting average, which would drop the on-base percentage a bit? We'll see. Um, I know that's something that he was focusing on during the offseason, and we'll see if it ends up coming to fruition. Uh, from the 618, guys, if the Blues can't remake the blue line in a trade at the deadline or the offseason, is there really any point in signing any forwards? Is this team doomed because of the contracts that they have with their defensemen? 
I don't think they're doomed because I don't think that, though I still think the defense will be a problem if you don't move any of them, I don't think they're all going to play as bad as they have this year. Uh, but to the question of should you sign forwards, should you be trading for forwards, I think you do because I think the way that you can kind of offset that is kind of what they did last year where it's you basically outscore your problems. And last year we've kind of talked about this. Their underlying numbers were similar to this year. They just got unbelievable goaltending from Ville Husso, which propelled them into a playoff picture. And their offense was better five on five. So I think what you do is you try to you accept the flaws that you have if you can't move these defensemen and you try to build with your forwards and try and outscore your problems five on five and also get better at the power play and get back to where you were when you had Perron on the power play unit, which was top 10 in the, in the NHL. So that's what they're going to have to do if they can't move any of these defensemen. Yeah, the only thing you can do to retool is by adding to the forward group if you can't get rid of these defensemen. So I, I don't think that you're doomed. I I think that you need to improve at five on five. And the way that you do so is by getting more offensive zone time. And the way you do that is by improving on your forward group. All right, from the 618, guys, if the Cardinals offense is consistent in 2023, can we finally admit that Jeff Albert was the problem? I, I'm so glad Jeff Albert is gone. And it's not because I wanted him gone or because I think that he was the problem. Just because I, I'm done having this conversation, honestly. Like, it, it is no longer particularly interesting to me. I don't think Jeff Albert was the problem. I think the Cardinals didn't have the dudes. And then last year, they got more guys that were in his system, by the way, down in the minor leagues because he oversaw that. Those guys came up. They helped the offense. There became more players that you could count on on a consistent basis throughout that lineup. And guess what? The offense was better as a result of that. Did they end up going through a bunch of games where they were shut out? Yes. Welcome to Major League Baseball in 2022. That's how all teams were, man. A lot of teams struggled in individual games, especially when they went up against the top right-handed pitchers in baseball. There's a reason why those guys are the best right-handed pitchers in baseball is because they don't allow a whole lot of runs, regardless of if they're going up against the Cardinals, the Dodgers, the Phillies, the Braves, whoever it is. Those guys are the best of the best for a reason. So can we admit that Jeff Albert was a problem? Man, if you want to, go ahead. That's fine. I'm not going to be there. I will say that they got an excellent bat at catcher. And they have a bunch of dudes that were able to outperform expectations, and then they went forward. So I won't be saying that, but if you want to, by all means, go ahead. I'm with you. I'm not going to be saying that. I think when you look at the Cardinals, one, it's going to be that they've added Contreras. That That is a part of it, adding one of the best bats at catcher in Major League Baseball. And also, if guys like Walker and Gorman turns this around, Yepes, who had a really good solid year for the Cardinals, those guys end up hitting. Alec Burleson, another one of them, one of those guys. They end up hitting. Part of that was... Yes, part of it is what they're doing at the major league level now with the new hitting coach and Turner Ward. But also, they came up through the minor league system, which Jeff Albert oversaw. So he deserves some credit there in terms of being able to prepare these guys for major league baseball, even though he's not on the staff currently. So I, I'm not going to be saying Jeff Albert was a problem if they have offensive success. All right, coming up in about 15 minutes or so, we'll get into some NFL quick hitters, including a strange Kyle Shanahan press conference yesterday. I don't know if you guys saw any of the quotes that came out of this. He doesn't seem thrilled. With A, the way that things ended for him and the quarterback injuries that they had to endure this year, and B, any question that has to do with what their quarterback situation is going to be in 2023. We'll let you hear some of that coming up in about 15 minutes or so. But coming up next, is there any scenario whatsoever in which Vladimir Tarasenko is back with the Blues in 2023? We'll talk about that next year on 101 ESPN. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage 
all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's not lose sight of some of the baggage that Tarasenko carries with him. Um, look, I, the ability to put the puck in the net and generate offense is going to trump a lot of things. But we know that he's got a history of injury. So there's a bit of a red flag there, even though, you know, he's, he's getting healthy here. Uh, and you've, you've got the history of wanting out of St. Louis and not being comfortable with the environment. Well, is that going to drag on into a new situation? You don't know. That was Darren Drager yesterday talking with the fast lane about, hey, what's the price going to be for Vladimir Tarasenko? What does it look like in terms of his market value? Now, in that same conversation, he basically said, hey, Ryan O'Reilly, if he returns and he looks healthy, and there was a report today from Andy Strickland who said that O'Reilly is expected to get back on the ice this week, start skating again. So hopefully everything goes well and he can get back on the ice for the Blues. But if he does, the expectation is, man, pick and a prospect or yeah, first round pick and a prospect. That's what you should be expecting for Ryan O'Reilly. There are no questions with him, even with the downward trajectory in terms of his uh, production this year. Everybody's going to want Ryan O'Reilly. That's a contender. Vladdy's a little different, and he's Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. There's a couple things that play into this, Tanner. One, he's got a no-trade clause. So if a team wants to deal for Vladdy, and for whatever reason, maybe it's the coach, maybe it's the system, maybe it's the city, he just doesn't want to move, whatever, he can say, I don't want to go there. And he can just deny any trade to any specific team that he doesn't want to go to. Maybe he's got, like, three teams that he would like to go to. Unfortunately for the Blues, and this is just a hypothetical scenario, those teams may say, yeah, we'll give you a third-round pick for him. We'll give you a, a conditional pick depending on how many games he plays, how many goals, whatever, uh, what kind of production he gives us the rest of the season, how far we go into the playoffs. You can put a bunch of different conditions on there. And the Blues would then say, potentially, yeah, that's not enough. We're not giving up Vladimir Tarasenko for a third-round pick. We would rather just keep him here the rest of the season. We've talked a lot about, okay, what about – the potential of bringing back Ryan O'Reilly. Does he make sense long-term here in St. Louis? We haven't done that a lot with Vladimir Tarasenko, I think for obvious reasons, because, you know, he requested a trade, demanded a trade, and has never actually rescinded that request. Is there any scenario, Tanner, any scenario whatsoever where it makes sense for the Blues in your mind to keep Vladdy past this deadline and then potentially to try to re-sign him after this season? I, I don't think so because I, I think the attempt to re-sign him past the season is all for naught to where you can be trying your best, giving him an even even more money than he's going to get on the open market. And I just don't think he wants to be here. I think he's ready for a change of scenery because, as you said, he's not he's not rescinded the trade request to our knowledge. There's not been any reporting that has hinted at that. He has not come out and said that. He, I don't even think he's really come out and declined or denied the reports that he even requested a trade. So... I just don't see a scenario in which that he's going to return in free agency. They're going to re-sign him, and I, I think they need to try and take whatever their best offer is on the table. And though it may be kind of like what you're saying, well, well, hold on, this offer doesn't feel like this is too low for Vladdy. 
I think you're past that point where you can say, yeah, we're we're not going to trade him unless we get that right offer. I, I think because I think he's going to walk in free agency, you have to get some assets for him. And, and I do think there's still going to be a team that's going to pay a decent penny for him to give up a first-round pick probably because they've seen the history that he has. And if some team misses out on Patrick Kane, who's going to be the number one target in terms of goal scoring on the market now that Horvat's off, I think teams will start to pivot towards Flatty, who has a history of being a goal scorer. So... Can I see a scenario in which he stays? Not really. Maybe Army holds him past the deadline, but I, I just don't think you can re-sign him to where I would almost just take whatever the best offer is, even if you feel like it's a little low. So here's, I, I guess, like, if I'm just going to play the devil's advocate, because you know I agree with everything you just said. Like, I, I, I do think that he should and will be traded at the deadline. But to play devil's advocate for a moment, who are your right-wingers beyond this year? Like, Jordan Cairo is going to play right-wing for you. After that, your second line right wing going into next season is... It's Neighbors? Is that who's like slotted into that spot right now? Let's do that. Under this hypothetical scenario, let's say Neighbors is your second line right winger. Who is your third line right winger, sir? Uh... <laughs> they don't really exist on this roster. And so like when we talk about whether or not Ryan O'Reilly should be back, I think you've got internal options for center. I think Shin is better at center than he is on the wing. And I think Shin has come out and said, and I, I prefer to play center if possible. Thomas is going to be your top line center. Shen almost certainly going to be your second line center. I think you can bring back Nola Chari on like a less than $2 million deal. And you can get center. 70%, 60% of Ryan O'Reilly's on ice production for like 30% of the cost. So in terms of a cost benefit analysis, I could see how that makes sense for them. Internally, they've got a different option or they could go back to the market, get somebody else that makes more sense for them. That's a little younger uh, and is much more cost effective than Ryan O'Reilly. I don't know if that exists on the right wing. And so if I'm in Doug Armstrong's shoes, how do you get yourself to a place where it makes sense to bring back uh, Vladimir Tarasenko? It's by looking at your roster and saying, okay, what are the alternatives here? The alternative might be just going to the trade market and getting the next Pavel Buchnevich or going to free agency and finding a guy that you think can be your next Brandon Saad, but on the right side, that's very possible. But I think that's how you get yourself to a place where you say, okay, it does make sense for us. And the other thing that I think would have to happen is the market value for Vladdy sounds a lot like what Darren Drager was just mentioning, where other teams have legitimate questions about him. How does he fit into our system? How does he fit into our locker room? Is the injury stuff bigger than what has been led on? Are all of these things, is that a player that we want to go out there and give what he's probably worth? If the answer is no, if he doesn't hear from other teams what he's looking to hear, and he ends up being in a spot where he says, you know what, as much as I didn't trust the training staff, as much as I didn't want to be back in St. Louis, St. Louis might be my best option. And the Blues could be sitting there saying, hey, all along we've been here for you. We have been the ones that believed in you all along. We've given you the contracts that you were looking for. We stuck with you through thick and thin with the injury situations. We always believed in you. You want a cup here. You can be remembered as an all-time fan favorite if you stick with St. Louis. I think that's the way he comes back. I don't think it's likely. I would put it at like a 5% chance. But in that 5% chance, if it happens, I think that's the way that it happens. Yeah, I, I can understand that argument and kind of that that kind of looking at it, okay, well, what are we going to do at right wing? But I think it goes back to, you know, us talking about trying to bring some new energy to the team. And that that's where it just comes back to the same conversation we had with Ryan O'Reilly, where if you think things have gone stale for the Blues and you're looking at potentially retooling real on the fly and also just changing up the forward group, I think you have you just move on from Vladimir Tarasenko. And I, I think Vladdy's going to make that decision 
easy on the Blues. Again, I, I'm with you. I think like less than 5% chance that he'd be willing to re-sign here in St. Louis. But to your point, I was just looking at like right-wingers on the free agent market going into this offseason. It, there's not a, there's not a lot of guys out there that really stand out. There's the top dogs like you know you've got Pasternak will be available, Patrick Kane will be available, of course Vladdy. But looking at a bunch of these other guys, to me they don't scream like a guy I want to bring in here to my top six. And, and look, I'm, I'm going to say it up front. You know I I don't know these free agents like I do Major League Baseball free agents. But when Tyler Pitlick is sitting at 13th most points among right wingers in the upcoming free agent class, tells me it's not necessarily that <laughs> deep of a right wing free agent class. So I can understand that perspective. But again, I just think it comes down to, look, you're trying to bring some new energy. You just want to change things up. There's staleness with this forward, with the Blues in general, but try and quickly change this forward group on the fly. And to your point of like looking at it, this when you look short term at the right wing position, like what do you do if you trade Vladdy? Neighbor slides in the top six, and at that point, you're trading at the deadline. You're not playing to win this season. Oh, so I'm not even talking. About, I'm talking about long term. Yeah, like, I, forget I the rest saying, of this but, year. This season is you're writing it off. Yeah, but maybe there's someone that stands out to you at right wing that ends up playing that we're not even talking about right now that gets more minutes after the deadline, and you say, hey, maybe they can slide in as our third line right winger. So I I think you can worry about that once you get to free agency in the off season. I wouldn't let that be something that holds you up and saying, oh, we need to really push ourselves and going all in on Vladdy. I will just say. If you look at the free agent market, Vladimir Tarasenko is probably the best right winger available when you're just looking production wise for, for the Blues. Like if they went to the market and said, OK, who is the best case scenario production wise for us to be able to get in here at right wing? It's probably Vladimir Tarasenko. I still don't think that's enough. I still don't think that it is likely for him to be back here in St. Louis. So my answer to the question, is there any scenario in which this team brings him back? I don't think so. I would be very, very surprised. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, we've talked all offseason about the Cardinals starting pitching and whether or not they have a number one starter. Yesterday, MLB Network put together their top 10 starting pitchers in Major League Baseball right now. There's one theme among those 10 starters. We'll tell you what that is coming up in about 15 minutes. But next, NFL quick hitters, including Kyle Shanahan was not happy about any of the questions that he was asked yesterday about his quarterback situation. What does that mean for their offseason plans? Talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. some NFL quick hitters. Let's start with the San Francisco 49ers. I think they are going to be a team that we talk about a lot this offseason. Once again, it seems like they're always in the forefront of the quarterback conversations, and this year will be no different. Brock Purdy going to be out for the next six months, most likely, with elbow surgery. We don't know what the status is for Trey Lance. They seem optimistic that he's going to be healthy, but we know teams are always optimistic about their quarterback's health. Kyle Shanahan was asked yesterday, hey, with the injury question surrounding those two guys, Jimmy being a free agent, how do you feel about your quarterback situation? Here's the qu- the question first, and then Kyle Shanahan's very brief answer thereafter. Would you be looking for a high-profile venue? No, we're content enough. We're content enough. Does that sound like a guy that loves his current quarterback situation to you, Tanner? Yeah, no, I'm not getting that vibe. I'm not getting the vibe that he's super excited with Trey Lance and Brock Purdy and whoever else might be under contract. I think that they are in a spot where they've got to just run it back. We said all along, the one guy that maybe you go after if you're the 49ers is Tom Brady, and now that option has been taken off the table for you. 
Do you consider going out there and making a play for Aaron Rodgers? Maybe. Do you consider going out there and trying to make a play for Derek Carr? Possibly. I would say probably not, though. You have a very good team. Supplement it with more talent through the draft. I think that's the way they go. I think you stick with what you got, even if you're not thrilled with it, if you're Kyle Shanahan. Another quarterback that it sounds like could have some movement this offseason is Dak Prescott. No, he's not getting traded. No, he's not getting cut. Stephen Jones, son of Jerry Jones, says, quote, Dak Prescott could be with the franchise for the next 10 years is the t- and the team is open to extending his current contract in order to lower his cap hit going into this upcoming season. Tanner, if you were the Cowboys, would you be considering a contract extension for Dak Prescott? I would because it's going to lower the cap hit potentially for the upcoming season because I think they've got a solid roster. Dak Prescott, is he one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL? No, but he's right around top 10, I'd say. So if you can get his cap hit, because I was just looking, his cap hit is $49.13 million. You can lower that down a little bit, supplement that roster a little bit better with some more cap space. I would be, I'd be up for it to give a contract extension to him. Now, if it's not lowering that cap hit, then no way in hell am I doing a contract extension. But yeah, but it will. With that in the my, with that in the back of my mind, yeah, I'd be open to the idea. I would be as well. You guys know that I'm I'm higher on Dak Prescott than most. I think he's a very good quarterback. I think he's probably like the eighth best quarterback in the league, somewhere around there, in that range at least. $50 million as a cap hit is a ton, and he's only got one more year after 2023 on his current deal. I would extend him. This is the kind of this is the spot where you go ahead and and you smooth out that money over the next four or five years. Now, the one counter argument would be this. If you decide to extend him now, you're tied to him for a longer term. If you don't extend him, you could get out of that deal after the 2023 season, whether you want to trade him or decide to cut him. You're not cutting him, but if you wanted to trade him somewhere, you could. I just believe in Dak Prescott. I think he should be their starting quarterback for years to come. So I would do it. I bet you if this contract comes out, because you know what it's going to be. It's going to be $45 million or more per year. Yeah, There's going to be a lot of backlash to that. I think that that is wrong. I think he's he's deserving of that. And that's the market rate. If you're going to re-sign your quarterback, you got to get it done. I would do it quick, though. If you're going to do this, it's got to get done before Joe Burrow and before Justin Herbert and before Jalen Hurts. Uh, To your point, you said, you know, you view him as like eighth in the the quarterback rankings. If he wasn't in a top 10 quarterback, then there's no way in hell you do it. Like, it's the conversation of like Jimmy Garoppolo. Why are the 49ers moving on from Jimmy G, even though he's had continued success when he's been healthy and starting at quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers? Because they know there's no upside. You know there's upside with Dak Prescott. I mean, you surround him with a good roster. Could he get you to a Super Bowl? Yeah, in a week NFC, sure. But if he I was think- in the conversation like Daniel Jones, if this was Daniel Jones and they were having these conversations, I'd go, what the hell are you guys smoking? No way in hell you should be doing that. I, it's going to be one of the great what ifs. If the Cowboys didn't trade Amari Cooper this offseason, this past offseason, I think they might have beat the 49ers. And if they were to beat the 49ers, I really wonder what that game would have looked like against the Eagles. I think the Eagles win. I don't think that they end up going to the Super Bowl, especially with the Tony Pollard injury. That that was going to be looming large regardless of yeah. who they were going to play. But I do wonder how much things change if you have Amari Cooper on this roster because they were desperately needing a number two wide receiver. They went this out and season. got T.Y. Yeah, I mean, and, uh, he's kind of washed up at this point. Yeah, he, he did everything that he could, but that's not the guy you want as your number two wide receiver in the postseason. So... I think they made a mistake there, and I think that they'll correct that this offseason. That's probably part of why they're making this decision. 
to be able to add a little bit more flexibility with adding talent around yeah, deck. And, and they still have, I saw a report yesterday, they're still connected to Odell, depending on what his, if there's anything from his repercussions from his off-the-field issues this past offseason, or this past season, but he would make sense for them on the field. I, I, I don't regret the Cooper decision because I thought it was right to move on from Cooper because I didn't think that, I thought Cooper was getting towards the back end of his career and just trading him to get him off the books made sense. I didn't think he was going to have that kind of year with Cleveland, though. He was really good for Cleveland this year. Yeah, he's a good player. Uh, all right, next thing up. Yesterday, the big news in the NFL was Tom Brady deciding to retire. Now we're pushing it forward a little bit. Last offseason, he signed that massive 10-year, $375 million deal with Fox to become the network's number one analyst. He's not going to be on their Super Bowl coverage. That's the starting point. It sounds like he's he's not there yet. But next season, the expectation is he's going to be a part of Fox. Tanner, I thought Greg Olson was outstanding this year. I thought he was... I mean, you could have made a case he was the best color analyst in the NFL on any of the broadcasts that I watch. I thought what he did in the postseason, he was the best analyst, no doubt about it. If you're Fox, what do you do here? Are you immediately putting Tom Brady on the number one team and he becomes Kevin Burkhart's guy and Greg Olson bumps down to their number two team? What do you do? Do you make it a three-team booth, a three-man booth? What do you do with that? That's what I was wondering. Was I? There's two things I think they do, because I think Olsen needs to stay at one, because I agree with you. I thought he was the second-best analyst all year long right behind Collinsworth. I don't think he could beat Collinsworth. And I thought he was better than Romo, though. Um, I, I think you either put Brady at the number two with uh, Joe Davis, who I think is their current number two play-by-play guy, and you have him there, or you put him as what you're saying, a three-man booth with Greg Olson and see how that works, get him kind of into the dynamic of broadcasting, and then over time maybe you end up just kind of shifting him slowly into Olson's role as the number one guy. But I would not let Greg Olson walk. I, I thought he was too good, and it sounds like based on something I saw that he's got an opt-out if they elect to put Brady at one. I was and just going to look that up. I wanted I, to make sure I had the right details on this. I, if if you let him walk, I, I already know where he'll be going. He'll become the next analyst for Sunday Night Football when Collinsworth is ready to go. That's how talented I think he is. Oh, interesting. I was going to go Amazon. I, I think that what you do is – because, listen, Kirk Herbstreit's really good on college The problem with football. that is Kirk Herbstreit's got such a massive deal with Amazon. I don't care. I guess they have unlimited Figure it money. Out. Yeah, they – that – I don't know that he had ever watched an NFL game prior to this year. Kirk, Kirk Herbstreit seems like a super nice guy, and he's excellent on college football games. It did not work. With him and Al, it was just not a good fit between those two guys. So if I'm Greg Olson and I've got the out, my first call is to Amazon. Let me get over there. And then afterwards, like maybe I do a two-year deal with them or something. I don't think Chris Collinsworth is retiring anytime in the immediate future. I can go over to Sunday Night Football eventually. But for now, I want to go be the number one guy somewhere else. I... He, he's too good to be a number two on a broadcast team, though. He, I, I don't I think that they there. should do a three-man booth, and I don't think he should I, be the number two guy. I can't remember. I'm trying to remember what Collinsworth's contract was. I thought he re-upped before the season to where he's going to be there I multiple years in NBC. But if he wasn't, you would support this idea. He leaves Sunday Night Football, goes and rejoins Al oh, for Thursday yes. night. Please, And Greg please, slides in with Mike Tirico for Sunday Night Football. That, mm, that's a chef's kiss if he's leaving Fox. I would love that. That would be the the ideal scenario. I do want to give Greg Olson his flowers, though. The guy was outstanding this year um, with his analysis. So credit to him because there's not a whole lot of guys that like actually add value in the broadcast. He did this year. He, he was excellent. Tony Romo was the opposite. Coming up in 15 yeah. minutes, we're diving into the junk drawer. But next, I do wonder if the way that we talk about the shortstop market and how the Cardinals avoided all of those contracts – 
I think the way we're talking about that right now eventually could become the way that we're talking about the starting pitcher market. I'll explain why coming up next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. going through their top 10 at each respective position right now. We spent some time talking about this. Nolan Arnato way too low on their list. Paul Goldschmidt high on their list. Lars Newbar pretty high on the fans list. Yeah, on that list. Tommy Edmond not even mentioned on the shortstop list, which was interesting to say the least. And we, that is the position. We had issues with that one. I think that that is the correct way to approach it. He probably at a minimum should have been at the back end of the top 10, but neither here nor there. When we talk about their top 10 list, we've spent a lot of time talking about the shortstops, right? I mean, you look at it. I think when I was watching that, I was I was down in Orlando at the time. I was watching it at night, and it, I was going through. I was like, how many of these different top 10 shortstops have switched teams over the last two offseason? It's like six of the top eight have switched teams over the last two years. I think the way that a lot of Cardinals fans talk about the shortstop market over the last couple offseasons is actually the way we should be talking about the starting pitching market. Tanner, as I was going through the shredder last night and their top 10 starting pitchers in Major League Baseball right now, I was going through, I was like, all right, Justin Verlander was at number one. He just signed this offseason. Carlos Rodon, number three. He just signed this offseason. Max Scherzer, number four. He signed last offseason. Sandy Alcantara, number five. We know the story there. He was in St. Louis before, you know, going down to Miami, unfortunately. Shohei Otani, he's going to be a free agent in this upcoming offseason. He was at number six. Max Fried, free agent in 2024. He's at number seven. Zach Wheeler, at one point, and I'm not going to criticize the Cardinals for this one. I didn't think they should do it at the time, so I've got to be fair. At one point was available in return for Harrison Bader. They decided not to make that deal. Way to open up that old wound. Justin or uh, Jacob deGrom was just signed this past offseason. And then Julio Urias is a free agent in the upcoming offseason. Every single player that was on the Shredder's top 10 starters in Major League Baseball right now either has been available to the Cardinals or will be available to the Cardinals before the end of next offseason. Every single one of them. If the Cardinals either balk at the asking price via trade or free agency, or they decide to move on from, in the case of Sandy Alcantara, every single player on this list, man, they do deserve a little bit of criticism. I'm not saying they needed to go out there and sign Verlander and Rodon and Scherzer. You don't have to do that. You're not the Mets. At some point, you've got to be willing to meet the asking price, though, for one of these guys. And maybe it ends up being the case that next year when they're doing this list, it's Jack Flaherty that's on the top 10 starting pitchers in Major League Baseball right now, and they've brought him back. That's fine. I don't care how you acquire this player. Maybe it's Max Fried that the Braves say, you know what, we've got our entire roster basically locked up long term. Freed, unfortunately, has to be the odd man out. We believe Spencer Strider is going to be eventually our number one starter. Freed, we're going to trade you elsewhere. And the Cardinals decide to make Matt that move. That's fine. Again, I don't care how you acquire this player that is at the front end of your rotation. But at some point, you've got to be willing to meet that price. And the price right now for these players is 30 plus million dollars per year on the most part. 
I mean, the one exception really is Carlos Rodon, who was at $26 million per year. Zach Wheeler's eventually going to get a $30-plus million per year uh, contract. I was surprised that Aaron Nola wasn't on this list. He's going to be available next offseason as well. I think you could have put him in the top seven or eight, and I would have understood the rationale behind it. There's pitchers that are available or will be available to the Cardinals. And if this year they don't get an internal answer for their number one starter, next year's when you got to be willing to do it. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. And next year is when we've talked about it, where their model is really going to be tested. And I think it comes just to the starting pitching market of will they be willing to give someone 30 plus million dollars to come in and be their ace to lead the rotation for five to six years to come? Because if they don't have that answer internally with Jack Flaherty this offseason, and even if he is the answer and they can't bring him back, they will have to replace him with somebody because as we talked yesterday with Kyle Reese, some of these top pitching prospects may not be aces that they have internally. And if they think Tink Hintz is that guy, he's a couple of years away still. It's not like they have an answer on the horizon that is ready to take over that role. So, And even if he was, he's cheap. And that's the other thing to keep in mind is like you've got the, the best True. case scenario for this team is that all of those guys that Kyle Reese told us about yesterday do become maybe even frontline starters. If they do and you go out and sign one of these players, great. That means I'm cost controlled at like three or four out of my top five starters and one of them is going to cost me a boatload of money. That's the best case scenario for them. Yeah, so they're going to have to change the model next season with the starting pitching market. And I think that's the only position that they're going to have to do it for in terms of looking at the free agent market, because they just don't have that. That is going to be a true need come next offseason. I, I said yesterday, you know, when you looked at the outfield this offseason, if you wanted to add an outfield in free agency, that was more of a want, because you had guys that were internal, that can play outfield, that had upside, or guys that you just felt comfortable with in the outfield. You're not going to have that with the rotation next year. I mean, you've only got one guy under contract as of today for next season. That's Steven Matz, and Matz slots in as like a number four. He wouldn't want him being leading your pitching staff as a number one. So, yes, next season, to your point, is going to be the year in which they have to do this. And unlike the shortstop market where, yes, it felt like a need for – not this past offseason, but last offseason when you had Corey Seager that made some sense for the Cardinals and you had Simeon and Baez that were out there and Trevor Story, you could look in their system and go, okay, well, in three, two, three years, maybe they turn things over to win and you can plug and play Edmund at shortstop, what they're doing this year. You just can't do that. It's hard to look through their minor league system now and go, okay, who's the ace in two to three years? Maybe it's hints, but again, to your point, he's going to be so cost-controlled that why not have more the merrier and bring in a guy that's going to make $30 million and can legitimately shove once you get to the postseason. Yeah, that's, I mean, when you look at it that way, that becomes the model that the Braves are utilizing right now, right? Like, you look at, they've got internally Spencer Strider, who came up through the system and then immediately was like, oh, that guy's special. He he is more than what anybody expected him to be, and he's He's kind of got the arsenal. It's, it's different. I mean, nobody's Spencer Strider, really. But he's kind of got the arsenal that people talk about with Tinkens, where it is wipeout stuff and strikeout stuff consistently. And the Braves are going to have to make that decision with Max Fried of whether or not they decide to bring him back. There was that, like, one-hour period earlier in the offseason where yeah. we're like, hey, Max ah, Fried's available. That guy makes a lot a of sense. Um, and, and that's the kind of thing that the Cardinals would be hoping to do is having a high-priced starter and also – having those guys that are coming up throughout the system, and maybe you end up re-signing them long-term the way that the Braves did with uh, Spencer Strider. And, and maybe it is they don't feel comfortable doing the long-term deals, you know, six, seven years, kind of the Rodon deal where it's, I don't remember what it was, six years, seven years? Six, yeah. Six years. Maybe they don't feel comfortable doing that, but then be willing to bring up the AAV more and do a shorter-term deal. Maybe it's Scherzer's the guy next offseason where it's, 
you know, one two-year two-year deal with a player option, and it's in the forty million dollar range. I, I don't think they'll do it still, but get more kind of uncomfortable with that. I, I'm okay with either way how you do it, whether it be a long-term contract, six seven years, paying a guy around thirty million dollars, or if you do it two years and you're paying the guy forty million dollars. But you do have to go find that guy on the market because again, you don't have that internal solution. And if you do think Tink Hintz is that guy, and you're willing to kind of gamble on that in say three years. There's the conversation of going with another short-term deal where Max Scherzer signs what he basically got last time around where it was two years plus a player option. So that that's what I think they're going to have to do. This is going to change. There are going to be guys that end up re-signing with their teams that they're currently with, and uh, there will be players that might end up getting traded and go on to um, a new team that ends up re-signing them. Right? We saw that with Luis Castillo last, or last deadline. But as of today... Max Scherzer, Shohei Otani, Hugh Darvish, Julio Urias, Aaron Nola, Blake Snell, Tyler Malley. All of those guys are going to be, be available next offseason. Now, I would say, like, Malley is probably a different tier than most of those other guys that I mentioned. But those other guys, if you went into a game one with Scherzer, Otani, Darvish, Urias, uh, Urias or Nola or Snell, that guy was your starter in game one and you had a deep rotation behind them. You feel pretty good about where you're at pitching wise. You got to be willing to go ahead and bite that bullet. If again, if things don't go the right direction with Jack Flaherty this upcoming season coming up in about 15 minutes or so. I want to get back to talking about Mizzou last night, a big game for them, a big game for Kobe Brown. I wonder if he has now suddenly become a legitimate NBA prospect. We'll talk about that and what got him to this place specifically with the player development side for Dennis Gase. I think he deserves a lot of credit for what we've seen this year for Kobe Brown. We'll do that coming up in about 15 minutes. The junk, the junk drawer, though, coming up next. You're on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's open it up. The junk drawer with BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Fenton Bar and Grill. Best trashed wings in Missouri. Dine in. Carry out. Seven days a week. And I'm Brandon Kylie. In about 10 minutes or so, we're talking about Dennis Gates proving the ability in a short period to develop talent. I think there's one player in particular that you can use that symbolizes that. We'll get into it coming up here in just a little bit or so. If you guys want to get involved in the show, 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line. But right now, let's dive into the junk drawer. Tanner, when you're watching the Super Bowl next Sunday, do you have a plan in place already on what you're going to be eating, what your go-to meals are for Super Bowl Sunday? Or do you have a, like a preference? If you could have your your pick and you went to a Super Bowl party, this is what ideally would be available to me. Maybe that's a better way to ask. I don't have a plan in place. I My ideal Super Bowl party would be like hanging out with a bunch of friends. There's beer, there's pizza, there's wings, and there's a big like 60-inch TV. That's like ideal, like my perfect food, though. Just food. Super Bowl pizza, party. Pizza? Oh, pizza, wings. Maybe nachos, put some nachos in there too. But yeah, that's probably the go-to. So there was a little bit of research that was done. Based on more than 9,000 Google searches to figure out what your go-to food is on Super Bowl Sunday. For the state of Missouri, the go-to food is chili, which makes sense. 
cold this time of year? Do you not eat chili during Super Bowl Sunday ever? You've well, never had I chili? Eat, I eat chili during football season, but like that doesn't scream, you know, football. That screams Chil- hey, chili doesn't scream football to no, you. No, no. I, <laughs> okay. I don't get that vibe. Uh, Maybe because I, I just eat chili a lot, but I don't eat it on Super Bowl Sunday. Interestingly enough, I don't think there is a single state where pizza was the go-to, as far as I can oh, tell. It can't be. Um, in Illinois, your home state. The go-to was buffalo wings. That makes sense. I support that. Others that are on this. Arizona goes with fried pickles. Doesn't exactly scream uh, football to me, but I do love a good fried pickle. I could get behind that for Super Bowl Sunday. Delaware is a crab ball. Not familiar. Gross. Georgia has what I think would be. I I had a feeling this might be your go-to. Pigs in a blanket. Have you ever had that? Oh, yeah. Uh, The the little mini. Oh, yeah. That's good stuff. Uh, seven layer dip is Idaho. A bunch oh. of states, especially in like the upper Midwest, go with tater tots as their go to food on Super Bowl Sunday. Interesting. Wouldn't have that on my list. Uh, Oregon was was trying to get to my heart with sweet potato fries. Washington was hummus, oh. which again does what? not sound now that very really does not scream Super Bowl. Uh, I guess because you got chips, I could kind of understand that, but still. Yeah, no, 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 no. We don't. I, I like a good hummus. I don't need that for Super Bowl Sunday. I'm yeah. good. Uh, South Carolina was going with a chili dog, which just sounds like it ends horribly for everybody involved. Mm, um, yum. What else do we got here? Anything else that's good? Maine goes with meatballs. There's a few other spots that have like the, the meatballs for Super Bowl Sunday. I, I, I can't get behind meatballs right on Super Bowl. Things I'm going to get behind because I think for some reason – that stands out as a meal my family used to do. Like I'm shocked. when I was growing up, like that was the Super Bowl Sunday food. And I don't know if like on purpose or by accident, for some reason that stands out. I am surprised that pizza is not on that list. Like that feels like the go-to. So the top 10, according to uh, this website, Super Bowl foods in America. Number one, meatballs. Number two, guacamole. Uh-oh. Number three, chips and salsa. Okay. You're not a guac guy? Oh, I can't stand guac. Really? Yeah. Just, I love a good guac. You know how you like don't like white gelatinous substance? Yeah. When I see a green gelatinous substance that's like chunky, I'm out. I wouldn't call guacamole a gelatinous Ugh. substance, but neither here nor there. Uh, tater tots are number four. Chili is number five. Buffalo wing six. Hummus is seven. Oh, no, I can't. Friends, if you are eating hummus... As a main portion of your meal on Super Bowl Sunday, you need to be at a better Super Bowl And that's party. coming from Beta Boy. And I love hummus. I love a good, like, pita, pita chips and hummus. I'm in. You don't have to, like, but that is not the day. You can go ahead and indulge in something a little more gluttonous than that on, on Super Bowl Sunday. Yeah, I'm out on that. Um, when it comes to the healthiest Super Bowl city and the unhealthiest Super Bowl city. Ooh. I'm going to go. Okay, I think let's see. Unhealthiest. I'll go like New York. That is correct. Okay. I, Number one most unhealthy city in America for Super Bowl Sunday is New York City. This feels like it's just a list of the biggest cities in America. Number two is L.A. Number three is yeah. Houston. Four, Phoenix. And then San Antonio, Chicago, El Paso, Philly. Those I are can the top see how San Antonio's up there. They got some good food down there. The healthiest cities in America are basically just, hey, let's see how many West Coast cities we can have on this list. Number one is Denver. Number two, Seattle. And then D.C. on this list somehow. 
And then Portland, Nashville, Las Vegas, Charlotte, a couple others that are on that list as well. But those are the most healthy and unhealthy um, huh. places in America. That's interesting. I, You know, one year, me and this was, I think when I was in college, I'd go to my uncle's for football every Sunday. Same same psychopath who uh, fast forwards through bad sure. movies. And what we did was each week we would get something different throughout the regular season for football Sunday to eat. And we all, me, him, his wife, and his two kids, came up with a list of our favorite ones throughout the year. And then whatever one got voted the highest, I think we had the highest and then maybe the second highest, we ordered that for Super Bowl Sunday. That's how we did it. And then you kind of went up the list for out the playoffs. Speaking well of the highest. Pizza was on that list. Uh, speaking of the highest, they asked your favorite food and drink, and then also are you partaking in anything else? According to this website, 40% of people are drinking beer like Tanner. 40% are drinking water. 20% are going with cocktails and 12% are going with wine. Oh, wine on Super Bowl Sunday. Interesting. More than two out of five prefer non-alcohol drinks. And nearly one in six people in America plan on smoking or taking edibles during Super Bowl Sunday. One in six people in America in the year 2023 plan on either smoking ed- uh, smoking cannabis, weed, or consuming some sort of an edible on Super Bowl Sunday. You said what percent? One in six? 14%. I'm actually surprised it's kind of that low. That feels be a little high to me. Oh, really? I think it'd be like one in five. I'm not even sure that there's one in five people that partake on, on a regular basis. I guess that's fair. I guess I don't know the uh, percentages of on a regular basis. Yeah, I was I was a little surprised by these numbers because I guess, I, the the biggest reason why is because I think a lot of people day. do it on their own. Like oh, they do it at okay, home, well that's right? Also true, yeah. You're going to a a large, in a lot of cases, family gathering, where oh, in yeah. many scenarios there's kids around and all. Like, hey, do whatever you want. I whatever. It, n- neither here nor there for me to. I'm not judging anybody for it. I'm just surprised that the number is that high when a lot of people spend time with their family on Super Bowl Sunday. Yeah, I didn't think of that. That okay. Then yeah, I, you're right. I think the one in six might be high now. Now I'm now I'm changing Feels my a little high to me. Yeah, now I'm kind of changing my tune on it. I could go for like a victory cigar after a Super Bowl if my team were in it. Like if the Rams were playing and they beat the Chiefs, you better bet I'd pop open some whiskey, I'd pour a little bit, and I'd light a cigar and go enjoy the rest of my night. Somebody said cannabis. All right, Grandpa. Sorry, I was reading from the story. That's on me. That's on me. I I should have been better. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, it's Tanner's favorite time of the week. We are playing a game of Believe It or Not, 314-399-9646 is the air comfort service x line to get involved if you want to throw out a scenario we'll tell you if we are believing it or not coming up in about 15 minutes but coming up next i think there is one skill that dennis gates has already shown that he's capable of and it's one of the most important skills to have success beyond just the 2023 season i'll tell you what that is coming up next you're on 101 espn we're right back to the pk and ferrario podcast presented by dobbs tire and auto centers on 101 espn You would think in a game like this, Dave, Missouri's going to win the shootout, right? LSU keeps shooting bombs. They don't get back on defense. Missouri makes you pay. 
because they're knocking in the box. That's what it sounded like last night as Mizzou took down the LSU Tigers. Big win for Missouri. No, LSU is not particularly good, but that's the type of game that I had a fear, at least, of Missouri coming out flat, LSU going on a little bit of a run, and the Tigers not being able to live up to the billing after a massive win at home against Iowa State. They were able to hold that off, and in large part, they did so because of their three-point shooting Kobe Bryant being chief among those three-point shooters. Last night, he finished the game five for six from beyond the arc. He was 10 for 11 from the field, had 26 points, eight rebounds, and five assists. Kobe Brown has been Missouri's best player from start to finish so far this year. And that three-point shooting is a large part of why. Tanner, I went back to look at it because, like, anecdotally, I thought to myself, man, Kobe was never like this previously in his career and then suddenly it all started to come together for him so I was wondering all right, where was he at previously compared to where he's at right now as a freshman Kobe was a 25 percent three-point shooter as a sophomore 25 percent last year 21 percent this year he is now shooting 48 percent from beyond the arc that's not just a pretty good shooter that is a like great to all other shooters in America type of a percentage this season. Let me put it more perspective on this. He has the same number of shots from three this year as he did each of the last two seasons individually. So he has 63 attempts this year from beyond the arc. He had 66 and 64 respectively over the last two years. He has made the same number of threes this year as he did the last two years combined in half of the attempts. It's been just a remarkable improvement. And so yesterday, Kobe Brown and Dennis Gates were asked after the game about how Kobe got to being a legit three-point shooter this season. Here's what they had to say yesterday after the game. We had to rediscover it. And it was almost like a, you know, uh, we were fighting. Coach, you want me to shoot that? Yes, I want you to shoot that. But it started in March. It started in first individual workout, right? That's when it started. Coach, so you're saying you want me to shoot this? Yes, Kobe, I want you to shoot that. No hesitation. I will sub you out if I think you're not shooting the ball that you should shoot. Okay, that's what. That's how confident I want to play. Go ahead and answer the question. I'm sorry. Man, I, I, like you said, just you know the confidence that they instill. Um, my teammates, coach, just the uh, the backbone you have, or I have. Uh, you know, just it's easier to shoot the ball when you, when you have so much confidence behind you. That's what they said to in response to how they got back to becoming a three point shooter. And Kobe Brown then expanded on it. He was asked as a follow-up question, what does that do for you as a player? Like When when you have the defense that now has to respect the three-point shot from you, which in the past has not been the case for Kobe Brown, and honestly, let's be, let's be real, the entire Missouri roster didn't have shooters, so it was very clogged up inside. Here's what Kobe Brown had to say when he was asked about what, what else it opens up for his game. Man, it's changed a lot. It, uh, it allows me to drive, allows me to get you know, guys open easier. Uh, it just feels like everything comes a little easier because, you know, guys, guys are stepping up and having the respect to people. Tanner, one of the things that I was frustrated by with the previous staff, and this is not a I hate Conzo Martin segment. I don't want it to be that. But I didn't think that there was enough talent development once guys got onto campus. It felt like guys would hit their ceiling their freshman year, and then that's just who they were. The rest of their time at Mizzou, they, they never really evolved as players. They didn't go from uh, being pretty good as a freshman to excellent as a junior or whatever. They just kind of came in, they did their time, and then they left. I think we're already seeing in one season at Mizzou 
the type of player development that we can expect from Dennis Gates at Missouri. And he talked about that a lot whenever he got there, but talk is so much easier than actually seeing the results. We have seen tangibly the results from a player that had been at Missouri for three years, what that player development program can mean for Missouri for years to come. So in year one, these are a lot of transfers, a lot of guys that we weren't familiar with. So it's hard for a lot of Missouri fans to know the history of, okay, what was this guy? What are they now? And how much did they improve? Kobe Brown is the one guy that you can really point to. And the type of player that he is today is very different than the guy that he was this time last year. Yeah, it's no coincidence that Kobe Brown is now playing at this level. That comes with the development from the coaching staff and working with them. And it's one thing to get players to come into your system, but it's another to make sure that they develop and and are able to reach their ceiling, not just their freshman year, but beyond that if they end up staying for four years. And to your point, I think you're seeing that with Dennis Gates. I mean, he's made Kobe Brown an all-around scorer this season. You know, him talking about the three-point shot, now because you have to respect it, you have to close out harder and allows Brown to use his size and get inside as well. So... It's a it's a big part. A lot of coaches don't have that. A lot of coaches can bring in the talent, but then they don't ever take it to the next level. And you're already seeing from an early stage that Dennis Gates is doing that. I think Brad Underwood does a great job of that at Illinois, allowing guys to take the next step. I mean, he had DeSumo, who was a guy that was projected to be kind of a late second round to not being an NBA prospect to getting drafted high in the second round. You see what he's doing with the Chicago Bulls. He had Kofi at Kofi Coburn kind of stalled out near the end of his career in Illinois, but he got him to take the next step once he had him in the system. So the great coaches not only can bring in talent, but they can get the talent that they've brought in and make it reach even higher heights than what they may have even originally thought once they brought him in. Yeah, I if you could have one skill as a coach that would translate to consistent winning in college basketball, it's probably just recruiting the best players. Like right, like we saw this with with Cal at Kentucky. Why did they, why were they so good over the years? It wasn't because he had this like miraculous system that he was implementing. He's a pretty good college coach that got the best talent. And they did a lot of winning as a result of that. But if you could have anything secondarily, it's the player development. Because over time, you need those guys to come into your program and get better. They need to add tools to their toolbox that they didn't have when they arrived on campus. And being able to develop that shooting for Kobe Brown... That's the type of thing that can make him into an NBA player. And this is where I think it becomes really important for Dennis Gates to be able to sell his program to other recruits is you can now go to families. And depending on how the rest of this season goes, Tanner, we were talking about this last night. There's potentially going to be NBA talk for Kobe Brown, like maybe a second round pick. Maybe he ends up latching onto the back end of a roster. If that happens, Dennis Gates can now go into a living room with a mom and a dad and the kid and say, look at Kobe Brown. You're a back half, maybe for this kid, back half of the top 150 type of recruit. So is Kobe Brown. Kobe Brown was a good, not great recruit. He was a guy that we kind of knew when he arrived on campus, he's going to be a three or four year type of a player. He's probably not going to be a one and done by any stretch. I did with this kid in one year, what I can do with you in three to four. By the time that you leave Missouri, talking to this kid, you can be an NBA player. Right now, people don't see you that way, but when I'm done with you, when we have finished this player development program with you, you're going to get three years of what Kobe Kobe Brown got in one. Imagine the player that you're going to become. Man, that is one hell of a sales pitch. And it's not just at Missouri. He did this at Florida State. We've seen what it can look like, but that was under Leonard Hamilton. There was a legitimate question of, can that translate to Missouri? We'll see. We'll see if this can continue. Maybe it's just Kobe Brown was an awesome player that implemented everything that they asked of him, and he deserves all the credit. Maybe. 
or maybe this is something that Dennis Gates actually has in his tool belt, and he's going to be the type of guy that can continue this with other players that get into the program. I think that's where my bet would be placed right now. That's kind of where I would lean too, because again, I I don't think you see Kobe Brown playing like this if Conzo was here for another year. I just don't think you see that development. And some people will say, well, Conzo had an NBA prospect. He had Michael Porter that he brought in. Porter never really played though. He was here for a handful of games, got hurt. So it's hard to point to a development from Mizzou being the reason he got drafted. His skills are basically, he was probably going to be drafted out of high school, but because the NBA draft rules, he had to go to college mm-hmm. and he decided to go to Mizzou. It'll be interesting to see how Dennis Gates is able to do that because I do think that's going to be a selling point. You were talking to me back in the office that he's got, what was it, three top 150 recruits Mm -hmm. coming in. Those are the guys to keep an eye on. Can he get those guys to be playing? And I'm not saying they have to be playing at an elite level next year, but over the next two, three years, where do those three guys kind of stack up by the time you get to their junior years at at Mizzou with Dennis Gates? Because that's how you're going to be judging Dennis Gates. I, I don't think he's ever going to be a coach that brings in such a massive recruiting class that competes with like Illinois, who's always up there near the top, North Carolina, the Baylors, those those teams of the world. But can he bring in some of these lower recruits, like you're saying, and develop them, not, maybe not even just to NBA prospects, but really good college players and build a solid program in Columbia? Yeah, I mean, this past season, Sean East and Modiara were, I mean, the top point guard and one of the top JUCO players in the country who's able to get both of them to come on campus. And they're both significant contributors right now. That's not always the case with junior college players. Aiden Shaw was a legit top 150 guy who... There were questions as to whether or not he was going to stick with his commitment to Mizzou after Dennis Gates was hired. He decided to stick along. And so far this year, I think we've seen some development from him. He's he's not playing a ton of minutes, but he's a guy that I think moving forward, you would expect to learn from a lot of this player development program, and he could benefit from it as well. Next year, you've got a kid that's ranked 107th in the country. You've got a kid that's 117 in the country and another one that's 106. Those are the types of recruits that I think you can expect with Dennis Gates. Maybe not the top five players that you're talking about. They're not going to steal a bunch of guys from Duke or Kentucky, Texas, Kansas. Those aren't the guys that you're going after. But you need to consistently get these four-star, top 100 types of players that can come in and over the course of the next three seasons develop in this program to become really high-level college basketball players. That's what we've seen with Kobe Brown. Hopefully we'll see it in the future with others as well. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so. I just don't understand the Chicago Cubs hype here in St. Louis. I I don't understand it at all. So hopefully we can understand it a little bit more coming up in about 15 minutes. But next, believe it or not, you give us a scenario. We'll tell you if we're believing it or not. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. You missed BT's performance last week. Did he go with it? Yeah. He let his hair down. He did Believe it or not, I'm walking on air. I never thought I could feel so free. Flying away on a wing and a prayer. Who could it be? Believe it or not. It's just me. 
314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line for Believe It or Not. It is Tanner's favorite segment of the week. If you guys have a scenario, we will tell you if we are believing it or not here on 101 ESPN. By the way, someone last week, and this was, you know, I, I just think it was their speakers over time have been getting worse in mm-hmm. their car. Of course. They said I've gotten worse over time. I am aging like a cigars. Yeah, well, maybe, but (laughs) I also think I'm aging like a fine wine 314 that sent that in. And I just think your car is aging like milk. I'm sorry. It's still stuck. We need to do that with our listeners. You know, I, I, that won't hurt because usually I see nice texts that are like, oh man, I love this. Tanner, great singer. That text hit me in the feels and I remembered from last week. I'm sorry. All right, guys, let's start with this. Uh, Believe it or not, guys, the Blues will get at least four draft picks at the trade deadline. Four draft? um, I'll believe it. I think you're getting two first, potentially, and Vladdy and O'Reilly. And you probably get a pick for Barbie, and you probably get a pick for one of Mikola, Achari, and Grice. Now, it won't be like a second or first round pick. It'll probably be like third, fourth, fifth round, somewhere in that range. But I can see where they can end up with four picks, so I'll believe that. Yeah, I'm believing this for sure. Uh, I think that they will end up getting at least four draft picks. I I think it's going to be a full-on fire sale for the Blues at the trade deadline. I expect at least four four picks in return, and I I think you could get more than that, honestly. Uh, 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line. By the way, Tanner... Do you say milk? M-E-L-K? Is that how you pronounce it? I wasn't yeah. I wasn't gonna call you out for it, but once we got Is that some why text, you, is I, that why you were stunned? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Milk. Okay. Just making sure Tell that we were on the same page here. Southerners. I, I didn't know it. if that was me yeah. or if it was you. Is that a southern Illinois type of thing? Yeah. You say the same thing, Ryder? I I mean how do listen, you say I it? I am in a glass house right now and you I am throwing stones all over. Like I have plenty of weird stuff that I say. Um Wait, how do you say it? Milk. Milk? Yeah. Milk. Okay. No, yeah. There's, I guess there's multiple ways to say it. I, I also say crown instead of crayon. So, like, listen, I'm certainly not the guy to be listening to here. Uh, guys, believe it or not, Nolan Arenado and Wilson Contreras will both finish top 10 in the National League MVP voting this year. Oh, I think Arenado will. Um, Wilson Contreras, has he ever finished that high? I wouldn't think so. I don't think so either, because he's always been kind of that third, fourth name that you think of in Chicago. He's never had an MVP vote in his career. I, I would be pretty surprised, but I guess if the if he does more winning this year in St. Louis than he had done previously, and he posts twenty five home runs, gets closer to like ninety RBIs instead of the typical fifty to sixty that he gets. Maybe, maybe he gets into that conversation, but I'm I'm gonna say not believing it because of the Contreras side of things here. Yeah, I'm not gonna believe it either because of the Contreras side. I, I just don't think he's gonna put up those kind of numbers where it stands out. Now, with that being said, you know, last year I I said this all year until Pools got hot down the stretch, but they were clearly missing a number five guy to be behind Goldie and Arnado because those guys were on base all the time. I mean, Goldie had a 400 on base percentage. Arnado was 358. They were always cleaning the table up from the guys in front of them. They needed someone to drive them in. If he becomes that guy and ends up hitting, what'd you say? 25 home runs. If he hits like 25 home runs and he drives in like 80, 90 because Goldie and Arnado are are on base a lot. And he kind of sits in that third as that third guy right behind those two. Maybe he gets in the conversation, but I just, 
he hasn't done it in the past, so I don't think he's going to do it now. All right, next one up. Guys, believe it or not, the Cardinals will have at least four All-Stars in 2023. At least four All-Stars this year. Wayno will be one. He'll probably be the commissioner selection, would be my guess. Goldie Arnado, I think, will be in. Just comes down to who's the fourth. I'll, I'll believe this. I, I think they'll end up with, I'll go even more than four. I'll go they get five. I go will be Goldie, Arnado. Wayno will be the commissioner selection is my guess. I will go with Helsley gets back into that conversation because he was an all-star last year. Contreras was an all-star last year for what it's worth. And then I was going to say it's either Contreras is five or Flaherty's five because I'm big on a big season for Jack Flaherty. Yeah, I, I think they will end up getting four. What did they have last year? I think they were pretty high up. They there. had One, Yachty, two, three, Albert, four, five, six. Yeah, they Goldie. had six last year. Helsley, Michaelis, oh, I Albert, Michaelis was an Arenado, and Goldie. So I forgot I, he was a goal, sir. I think you can expect Goldie and Arenado. Those are guys that perennially are going to be in it. Um, I think you get at least one pitcher and then potentially throw uh, Contreras into the mix as well. Maybe so, you end up getting an outfielder. Okay. Let's go there. Believe it or not, the Cardinals nah. will have at least one outfielder in the All-Star game this year represented. Not, nah, and I know the name you're thinking of, I think. I mean, I've said all along, I think that there's at least a chance that Lars Newbar yep. can be that guy. That's the name who I thought you were going to go with. I, I'm going to say not. I I don't think O'Neill will ever be another MVP caliber player. I think he could be a good player, but I, I don't think he'll ever do what he did in 20... Uh, not, no, wait, what year is that? 2021. Um, I, I'm not high on Newbar, and I think Carlson's always going to be a guy that, even at his ceiling, it's always going to be a guy that's just viewed as like a really good baseball player, really solid. Kind of like how you view Tommy Evans. Edmonds now viewed as a superstar. He's viewed as a really good baseball player, though, so... I'm not going to believe it. I don't think they're going to have an outfielder make the all-star team. Uh, the tough part about the outfield, too, is there's like three spots that are guaranteed to be represented. Acuna, Betts, and Soto are going to be just every year. They're they're going to be voted into the, uh, yeah. the all-star game. And then you basically got three other spots to play with. So there's just not very many opportunities. And everybody, every team's got to have somebody. The outfield, a lot of the time, is a spot where... Like last year, you had um, Jock Peterson, Ian Happ, Starling Marte. There's guys that can have those breakout seasons out there, and there's other teams that they've got to have somebody that gets into the all-star game. So um, I, I would say not believing it, but if there is one, I would go Lars Newbar as the one that will end up getting in. Uh, guys, believe it or not, Juan Yepes ends up getting a bigger opportunity than anybody's expecting and hits at least 25 home runs in 2023. Juan Yepes, 25-plus home runs. What did he finish with last year? Finished with 12 last year. Okay. He finished with less than Gorman, which is actually a little surprising. Played in 76 games, so if you double that, he's yeah. right around this this spot. Um, Man, I, I, I really think it really like is a question of do you believe that he's going to get those opportunities at DH over Nolan Gorman? Yeah. That's really the question. I'll hmm. – I think I will believe this one. I, I think he will end up winning the DH job because I think he has no splits. And I, I think you want somebody that can provide that constantly every day can play. And I think Yepes is going to be a guy that you are going to want in the line because I think he's going to hit for a decent average, get on base, a decent clip, and he's clearly got the power. I, I'll believe this. I, I think he'll run away with the DH job. And I think we're talking about, even though I think Gorman could still have a big year, we potentially are talking about Gorman being trade bait at the deadline. Um, I am not going to believe this just because I think there are so many players that they're going to have to filter through that DH spot. I think you're going to see Contreras get a good number of opportunities at DH. We saw last year they use it kind of like once every seven or eight games where they're getting 
a day for for Arenado, a day for Goldie. I think they're going to continue doing that. I think we saw last year that it, it clearly kept those guys pretty fresh throughout the season. I think it helped them to get off their feet for a day. So when you add that all up, let's say it's one day for Goldie, one day for Arenado, one day for Contreras every week. It only leaves you like three other days for Yepes to get consistent at bats. I just don't know that he's going to be able to get enough for 25 home runs. I think he's productive. I'm super excited about Juan Yepes this year. 25 home runs is going to be a little tough for him without getting those everyday opportunities. But if he is swinging the bat well, I think what you see is on those days in which it's Goldie Arnato that are out of the lineup. He's at he's, first base he's or, he's third at first base. or third base. That's a good point. Or, or he slides in the outfield. Maybe it's okay. O'Neal's our, for example, O'Neal's our starting left fielder on days when Yepes is DH for his defense. And when we need somebody else to DH, we slide Yepes into left and we bring in O'Neal late as a defensive substitution. Good point. Uh, believe it or not, from the 618, Tanner, I think this one's directed at you. Iowa is scared of the Illini, and that's why they canceled the Orange Crush tickets to the game this weekend. Did you see this story I last did. night as it developed? Yeah, I got the notification from ESPN late last night. I was like, what the hell? That is bizarre. But yeah, I'll believe that. Yeah, of course Iowa was scared of them. I mean, can't beat them in football. They definitely can't beat them in basketball. So yeah, I'll believe it. They're, they're terrified of the Illini. Did you see the follow-up? No, what was the follow-up? So apparently the Orange Crush bought those tickets under the disguise that they were going to be going to the Boys and Girls Club. They are obviously not the Boys and Girls Club. Mm. And that was part of why they didn't end up getting the tickets. Nobody ended up coming out looking particularly good yeah, in this I was story. Say, uh... Both sides lost. Um, I don't think that they're afraid of Illinois. I will say this is a big game for the Illini. I was pretty decent. That, that's a good team. And if you could get a win on the road at Iowa, that's a a big win for the Illini this upcoming week. And I think if I'm not mistaken, unless something changed last night, I think the Illini are sitting is it alone in second place. Oh, no, sorry. They are tied with Rutgers at, in second place. Rutgers good. <laughs> Rutgers, Rutgers is good. legitimately good this year. The whole Big Ten is, like, unbelievably tough. Like, I know, like, a lot of people look at, like, conference play, and, you know, you look at it and it's like, really the only team that's run away is Purdue, who's 11-1 and in the conference. You want to talk about a log jam. Everybody in that conference outside of Ohio State who thinks dealing with injuries, Nebraska, Minnesota, is legitimately good. Everybody is sitting at whether it be between five and seven wins in conference play. Yeah, the Big 12, I think, is the best conference in America this year. Big 10 is second. Um, Big 10 from from top to like the middle of the the pack is and I'd really say good. SEC is probably three. I mean, they've got a bunch. Of, and I think they're carrying more from the top, I, top tier. I haven't watched enough of the Big East, but... Some would argue the Big East, Marquette, yeah, Xavier, true. Providence, Creighton. All those teams are, are really good this year. But some some would argue that you can I think you can go back and forth between which one. By the way, uh, Xavier making the hire of Sean Miller hiring criminals. It seems to work out pretty well, but he has been excellent for them so far this year. They're 18 and five um, and their offense is tremendous. So turns out that that guy is a very good coach coming up in about 15 minutes or so. We're hitting the rewind. But next. I just don't understand what we're doing trying to hype up the Cubs in the Central Division. Are they going to be better this year? Sure. It was hard to be a whole lot worse. So we'll talk about that coming up next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.
that's the problem with predicting the Cubs. I mean, we just don't know about these projects in, in Bellinger and in Hosmer, even even Mancini. You know, all those three guys I just mentioned. Who knows? They've had good years. They've also had bad years. Um, so their peak contention is really a few years away when those minor league players are ready. That was Jesse Rogers yesterday on the fast lane. I agree with everything he just said. It's a little tough to be able to truly evaluate this Cubs roster. And alongside Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. The Air Comfort Service text line is 314-399-9646. All right, we got this text from the 314. BK, I've been listening to you for a couple of years now, and basically every season you go into the baseball year expecting and writing off the Cubs and the Brewers. You want to know why people are worried about the Cubs since you're the numbers guy? Here are some numbers for you. With that bad lineup and pitching, the Cardinals were 28-20 and 20 last season against the Cubs. Don't know if that's possible. I'm guessing they meant to say 18-10. and 10. Uh, The Cubs have upgraded their team tremendously with a lot of really good players that the, uh, the Cardinals have coming back with the same team. They have one addition, Wilson Contreras. If the Cardinals weren't that great against a bad Cubs team last year, what makes you think they're going to be better against them this season? Tanner, the Cubs are the island of misfit toys. All of the guys that we talked about this offseason that were like, eh, that'd be a fine addition, but I don't really love it. That's who the Cubs went out and signed. Like, look at the bottom half of their roster, like their lineup, right? Eric Hosmer. I brought him up as, hey, maybe he could be an interesting left-handed bench bat for the Cardinals and was laughed at on the text line. He's probably going to start for them next season and bat like towards the middle of their order. Trey Mancini. Anthony Stalter has brought up this gentleman's name, I think, for two straight years. Nobody really wanted Trey Mancini in the offseason. He wasn't even necessarily in the mix for the Astros by the time that they got to the World Series. He's a fine player, but nobody is clamoring for Trey Mancini to be in this lineup. He wouldn't make the starting lineup for the Cardinals. Cody Bellinger. I know we have a lot of fans of Cody Bellinger in our audience. A lot of people wanted Cody Bellinger. I wanted no part of a $17 million bounce back candidate who over the last two seasons has been the offensive equivalent of Paul DeYoung. I don't need that guy on my roster. And then you've got Tucker Barnhart, who I know you were talking about, like, if the Cardinals went cheap at catcher, sure, go ahead and get Tucker Tucker Barnhart. His offensive numbers are atrocious. He is offensively, again, what Paul DeYoung has been offensively for the Cardinals. He adds nothing. And then on the pitching side of things, they did this year the equivalent of what the Cardinals did last year with Steven Matz. They went and got Jamison Tyon. Tyon's fine, but he's not a guy that is going to put you over the top. What they did this offseason is go from being horrible to plugging some of these holes inter- or externally, I guess, with some free agents that make them slightly better. The one guy that I think tangibly upgrades their roster from where they were is Dansby Swanson. And we talked about this last year. When you went up against the Braves, you were not afraid of Dansby Swanson. That was a guy that just happened to be surrounded by great talent. And he's a perfectly solid overall player. Going to be out there every day. Going to play good defense for you. And he'll hit like 270 this year with a decent amount of pop for them. Him and Tommy Edmond, if you're looking at your lineup, not all that dissimilar in my opinion. So why am I, for those of you that are curious why I'm like writing off the Cubs? Because they're not very good. And if they change my mind this season, great for them. Good for them. But this team as currently assembled is nowhere near the St. Louis Cardinals. They can't hold a candle to the St. Louis Cardinals. And the hype that we're seeing about them potentially like 
pushing the Cardinals or the Brewers, man, we got to stop this. It's nonsense. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you. I, I don't think the Cubs, they remind me a lot of those, because you said it perfectly, the band of misfit toys. They remind me kind of those 17-18 Cardinals where it was always a bunch of guys Absolutely. playing. and out. Not that these guys on the Cubs are playing out of position, but that's kind of what they remind me of. And like that 17 Cardinals team, they went 83-79. and 79. Like, could I see the Cubs going 83-79? and 79? Yeah, maybe. I think if everything hits their way, I think they could be a team that's slightly above 500. But 83 wins isn't going to push the Cardinals to win the NL Central. I mean, you're going to need 90 wins to win the Central. And I don't think their roster is constructed that way. I don't think Bellinger's going to have a bounce back year. I know everybody, like you said, wanted him here. I didn't want to touch him with a 10-foot pole. I don't think he's good. I think it's more likely he gets DFA'd in season because he's so bad for the Chicago Cubs. So... I, I lean towards you. I, I don't think they have the offense. They are up and coming. There's no doubt about that. But they're not good enough with even hitting their ceiling to get towards that 90-win mark to try and push the St. Louis Cardinals. I think Milwaukee will finish ahead of them in the standings this year. Totally agree. I think Milwaukee has a, a bullpen that can carry them. I think they've got a rotation where when you've got those front two guys with Burns and Woodruff, they can carry you for a decent portion of the season. I think they're a slightly above 500 team. I don't think that that offense is great, but they haven't been great for a while. I loved the addition of William Contreras, though. That's an excellent hitter who was basically handed to you for a prospect that's considered to be good but not great. Jesse Winker has the chance to rebound this season. I think they just made better bets this offseason is the way that I would frame it. Like, if there is one team in the Central that I would be more afraid of, and again, not afraid of, but more it would be the Brewers. I, I think they're a genuinely better team right now as currently assembled than the Cubs are. I also think both of these teams have been assembled to trade from at the trade deadline. Like If things don't go well for the Cubs, they're going to trade all these pieces off at the deadline. Like Eric Cosmer, send him off for spare parts. If Cody Bellinger is really good this year, guess what the Cubs are going to do? They're going to flip him. They're going to flip him at the deadline because he's an excellent, potentially, excellent defensive center fielder who adds a bunch of pop to somebody's lineup. Everybody would love to have that, especially from the left side. So when I look at the way that this division is currently assembled, none of these teams really scare me if I'm the Cardinals, and they shouldn't. If you're trying to compete with the Mets, the Braves, the Phillies, the Dodgers, and the Padres, you shouldn't be concerning yourself with the Cubs or the Brewers. Those teams should be at this point behind you, and I believe that they are. So I'm not super worried about that. That being said, Tanner, there was something yesterday I wanted to ask you. Is this something or nothing? came from baseball prospectus and they were talking about the two central divisions but this is honing in on uh, the national league central specifically talking about this new schedule that's being implemented in 2023 and how much of an effect it could have on teams like the cardinals for example here's what they wrote in 2022 the dodgers led major league baseball with 54 games won in their division the astros won 51 the mets won 50 braves won 48 they were all also good in intra-division games. St. Louis, though, tied the Braves with 48 wins inside of their division. Cleveland was next, tied with the Yankees with 47. But outside of their respective divisions, the Cardinals were 35 and 31 against the rest of the National League. The Guardians, 33 and 33 against the rest of the American League. So the two central divisions, the best team in their divisions, Not good against the other teams in their leagues, but great against their own division. They added, teams will have uh, two fewer interdivision games this year than they did last, but to a degree, uh, uh, the degree to which those games um, indicted a team's true talent, 
They seem at a disadvantage when they give up 24 games against the weaklings in their own division and add 26 games against teams in the other leagues. St. Louis and Cleveland, for example, may remain the class of their division, but they were also the weakest division champs. So what does that say about them? St. Louis was eight games worse than the Braves, 18 games worse than the Dodgers, and got bounced in the wild card round. Those gaps could be exacerbated in 2023 because of the new schedule. Tanner, something or nothing, the way that this new schedule is going to impact the Cardinals relative to the other NL powers. I I lean towards slightly something. I, I think it will affect them a little bit, but I don't think it's going to be so astronomical that you're looking at the Cardinals winning the Central Division with like 83 wins. I, I think they may be one or two losses worse than they were last year. But I, I don't think it's something major. I think they're a better team going into the season than they were last year that we've talked about. I mean, we mentioned it. Their lineup was ranked second on ESPN's list. And I think it was, what, six guys were projected to have OPS pluses above, I think, 100 or above mm-hmm. league average. So is it something? Maybe. But again, they're also going to get a bunch of those bottom dwellers from the American League as well to make up for some of those lost games in the NL Central. I, I don't think it's something that's major. I don't think it's anything that like we look back at the end of the year, we're going to go, oh, they missed the playoffs because they didn't play their NL Central opponents more. I, I don't think that's the case. I think it's kind of nothing. Um, and the reason why is what you said there at kind of the middle of your answer. You're going to give up games against the Cubs and the Brewers and the Pirates and the Reds to gain games against the White Sox, Twins, Tigers, and Royals. I don't think that's a massive difference, man. Like, both divisions are just brutal. And you'll also add new games against Oakland and Texas and the Angels and the Red Sox. Like, it's not as if all of the teams in the American League are just dominating on a night-in, night-out basis. Yeah, you'll add games against the Yankees. You'll see the Brew- or the Blue Jays early in the season, and th- that'll be tougher than maybe what it would have been previously. But you're also going to add some games against some of these other bottom feeders. So I... I don't think it's going to amount to a massive change for the Cardinals in terms of what you expect from them going into this upcoming season. But I think that it might change some things a bit for like the Reds. You know, maybe they end up having to go up against some of these other teams that are a little better and they they see themselves fall even further back into the pack. But I I don't think it really changes much, honestly, for a team like the Cardinals. I agree. I I think it it benefits teams that are like in the AL East where all five teams could potentially be good this season. For example, the Rays, I think, are a huge beneficiary of this new schedule. They don't have to run into the Yankees. They don't have to run into the Blue Jays as much. They get more of the bottom feeders from the NL. Mariners as well would be another one that I would throw in. Yeah, that's that's another good one. I think those are the teams that kind of – benefit from it i i to your point on teams that aren't going to benefit from it it's the teams that are already bad because they have to play more winning teams like these teams like the cardinals that kind of sit in that middle tier it maybe moves their win loss total by like a game or two at the best yeah that's kind of where i'm at as well he's tanner hendrickson i'm brandon Kylie. if you've missed anything from today's show be sure to check it out on the podcast page 101espn.com the free 101 espn app is where you can find it and it is all Presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers. We'll hit the hit the rewind coming up next. You're on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.
tonight is going through their list of the top 10 catchers in Major League Baseball right now. The fan list is out. They tweeted this out a little bit ago. Tanner, we talked about this off air. Wilson Contreras came in at number eight on this list. The catchers in front of him include Real Muto, uh, Adley Rutschman, Cal Raleigh, Will Smith, Salvi, Jose Trevino, and Alejandro Kirk. Interestingly enough, seven, eight, nine on this list are kind of the catchers that we spent most of the offseason talking about with Kirk Contreras and Sean Murphy. Contreras coming in right in front of Sean Murphy on this specific list. Where do you think Contreras will come in tonight on the Shredders list of the top 10 catchers in Major League Baseball? So I think on the Shredders list, he'll get hurt by defense, and his numbers kind of tailed off at the end of the year because he's dealing with the ankle injury. I'll say he's, I'm going to go, what did you say he was the fan list? Eighth, Eighth yeah. I, I think he'll be right there. I think he'll be eight, nine, somewhere in that range. Where would you rank him? I I would probably put him at seven because you said he's behind uh, Alejandro Kirk. Alejandro Kirk. I, I think I would put him there because I think his bat's better than Kirk's. I know we've talked about it, though, that you know when you look at the numbers, Kirk probably has the edge. I'm a little surprised uh, Rutchinson's way up there on the fans list already. I think he'll get knocked down a little bit because he was just a rookie. Yeah. But I, I think that's probably about right, kind of that back end of the top 10 is where I would put so him. So I, I think the top four feels about right with Real Muto, Rutschman, uh, Raleigh, and, and Smith. Salvi, that area is where I start to wonder. Like once you get to around five, I think you can make a pretty strong case for um, Contreras. Trevino is one of those guys like he's the polar opposite of Contreras. Everything Contreras brings offensively, Trevino does not. Everything yeah. Contreras lacks Catcher defensively first. is what Trevino is. So I think once you get to about five, that's where you can start making the the case for Contreras. I would probably have him like I, I just value the offense more. So I'd probably have him around sixth. I think on my list, I would go Salvi five and Contreras six. I think by the end of the year, though, you could probably end up flipping those. And Perez also just doesn't play catcher as often. I would say he's more of a DH now. Yeah, so I, I think right around that area is probably where he should end up. We'll be watching that. We'll be reacting to it tomorrow. Uh, been a fun week to be here with you guys, with me and T-Bone. We'll be back same time, same place tomorrow for one final show going into the weekend. The Fast Lane's coming up next from 2 to 6 right here on 101 ESPN. You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.